We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome into another edition of the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. Happy December to all of you. It is one of my favorite months of the year. It's even better, obviously, Alan, if Florida is relevant in football. But you know what? I've got the Dolphins this year. You've got the Jaguars. We at least have winter football that matters. Uh, But a big episode on tap is we're going to recap the season for you. We'll get you ready for bowl season. And we will discuss what Florida can and should do right now and this offseason to maximize their chances of success in the near future. So a lot of good stuff on tap. Alan, how are you feeling today? Feeling great. We got an early Christmas present for Gator Nation. Both Florida State and Georgia are out of the playoff. We'll talk about that towards the top of the show. Uh, no matter how you feel about the process, the result is a little glorious. It is. In a year where we've had nothing really to celebrate, it seems like cheap and silly, and you know you're down when you're celebrating that. But you know, truth be told, if they can't win a title, that that is good news for me. I mean, Georgia three-peating. Oh, well, the worst. Or, I mean, FSU winning, I guess, would have been worst. FSU winning would have they been They weren't going to win, I don't think. But No, but that would have been the worst. But yeah, now neither of those things are a possibility, and both of those fan bases are frustrated, which also illustrates something important about following your favorite team, Every team's a loser but one, and all of those teams are frustrated in different parts for different reasons. Uh, So, you know, misery loves company, as they say. All right. That's always, Alan. If you like this show, if you like this content. I do like this show. If you like to hear Alan talk about football every single week, then follow us on social media. Sub to the YouTube channel for our film reviews and become a patron on Patreon where you can drop us a dono to support our efforts to bring you this type of content all year long. Shout out to B-Red on a wonderful season, helping us get this document ready, the show notes, the show production, and then Carly the Commissioner, who just killed it this year on the Good video job, It was so smooth and glorious. Greatly appreciate that. The GNFP Sammy and GNFP Java Discord, I know have really just fully taken off. Both of them very active, lots of good conversations, lots of good times. Love that. Great work there by Sammy and Java 
who they are named after. Those are real people whose idea it was to start them, and therefore they get the glory. If you have not yet, check out our merch. It's pretty great, Alan. Every single couple of days, I get a notification that someone is on there picking up some merch. And it's so, the holiday season, yeah. Yeah, you guys asked for it, and uh, you know we we delivered it for you. So if you ask for stuff, we do our best to, to Looks give you great. Uh, what you need. The wife, her, uh, two of her shirts, two GNFB shirts, regular rotation, so I see them all the time. It's fun to see them out in the wild. It's great. It's all it's all good fun. I love it. My mom actually specifically over Thanksgiving asked, "You know what I want for Christmas? I need some GNFP gear." And I thought, "This is this is great. You know what a what a great time to be alive." Merry all Christmas, everyone. All right, a couple new patrons coming in with a small dono. Kevin Alcello, welcome in, Kevin. Great to have you in the fam. And then two hundo bombs got dropped. Yeah, big hundo bomb. Kind of end of season. I guess you're celebrating the end of the misery, perhaps. But Ben Baldwin, welcome in. Yeah. And then Ralph Jacoby, welcome in. Thanks Two so much. stellar people, it sounds like. Yeah, for the hundo bombs. Love that. And still on the throne, of course, out there in California, Barry Jenkins. Hopefully, we're going to have him on, I think, for like a maybe next season or in the off season, a segment on him. I hey, Barry, it. explain to us how you went to Florida State and you are a Florida fan. And Barry... Write to us this week about how you felt about Florida State not making the playoff. Because I know, like you said, so many of your friends are just avid Florida State fans. I'd love to hear what your feelings were like uh, over this past weekend. Okay, the rest of the legends here. James Ridge, Guy Tumbleson, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Jason Walker, The Big Comey, Lil Peyton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bob Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truick, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Romer, Craig Scarado, Alan Horn, Sidney Singleton, Kristen Moody, David Sugar, Percy Harvin Baby, and Doug and Lynn DiVirgilio. There they are. Okay, we're going to get into the CFP talk Really quickly, but first let's let's walk through all of the bowl games and just talk about the results. Obviously, before we get into the discussion of the committee, um, yeah. So well, here, yeah, let's let's just let's do it. This is different than normal. Right? Yeah, we normally leave with Gator talk, but I think this is the discussion the that CFP has to talk. be and had bef- first. And of course, before see we get to the decisions, we got to talk about the games. But just to put a bow on the season, uh, you finished up. You know, four and six this week, so a sixty-three and seventy-four win mark. I went five and five, solidifying myself an above five hundred season as a champ. Great, great season by you. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it for sure. And let's talk about those games: New Mexico State versus Liberty. Liberty wins forty-nine thirty-five, and they find themselves in a New Year's Six bowl after all the success. You called this one, and Alan, is it possible that Liberty now is just a football factory where anyone can win there? I don't know. They've had they've hired two really good coaches, I think, back to back. So I guess you can win at Liberty. And like I said, I'm a big Jamie Chadwell fan. Love to see him try it on an even bigger stage. All right. This was a phenomenal game. Oregon, Washington. Everybody was on Oregon. But Washington wins 34 31 i mean you and i said what does vegas know that we don't know washington beat oregon the first time a nine point favorite 
It felt excessive. Of course, I think we both thought Oregon was probably going to win the rematch. It's hard to beat a team twice. And all Washington does go, is go and, and win this game twice. So Yeah, it was weird because, you know, since that game, Washington had been kind of scuffling along, but Oregon had been, like, crushing people. But Washington just has their number for sure. Okay. Uh, the game's on Saturday. Miami of Ohio, Toledo. Miami of Ohio does win 23-14. to 14. I didn't watch this at all, but good for them. Yeah, not a pick that you and I made. Nope. So, you know, always be careful with Miami of Ohio. That's the lesson. And Boise State, having fired their coach, go on to win their conference. They beat UNL, UNLV 44-20. to 20. You know, if you're if you're going to fire a coach, this is the result that you want. Play play, so. play coachless and, and win a title. I wish and that would happen to us here at Florida. Can we just play without a coach and win titles? <laughs> I mean, I'll do whatever it takes. They, and then they hired the guy. So good job by him. All right. The ponies of SMU take down Tulane 26-14. Really good win for them. Yeah, the ponies. Is this also a school where you can just always see me? I think so. I think so. This feels like it's... If you're good enough, you're going to win there for yeah, sure. Tulane, disappointing season for them. They had high expectations. They still were fine, but yeah. obviously did not accomplish what they wanted to accomplish uh, given they had a lot of returners, quality quarterback. Uh, so either way, good game there. And great, great season. By they SMU. lose their coach to Houston, so not yep. a great day for them. All right, App State, Troy. Troy turns in two really great seasons in a row, and they win 49-23. Yeah, so App State with no Billy Napier there in the Sun Belt doesn't matter. Troy, as we talked about now, has emerged, I guess, as the new Louisiana, perhaps, and a, a dominant victory. Man, Texas just puts it on Oklahoma State from the jump, and they win 49-21. to They looked really good the past few weeks. Yeah, super solid end of the season for Texas, and Oklahoma State, really a good season for them. Nothing was expected from them. They had some bad and weird results, but I think even to be in this title game was a, a solid ending for them, uh, but a down year for Oklahoma State. And Texas, a team that we had said early on in the year looked like they were the best team, then had to deal with, uh, with the Quinn Ewers injury, and Quinn, obviously, out you know for multiple weeks, handled that just fine. And they seem to have regained their stride and even now extended their yeah. quality play. So they head into the playoff as, as perhaps the hottest team with regards to consistency of winning towards the end. They, they, nobody was close to beating them, right? Like Bama should have lost to Auburn. True. And they didn't. But Texas has been, has been putting, just putting it to people the past three or four weeks. All right, Louisville, Florida State. Florida State wins 16-6. to As we know, it wasn't quite enough. This was just a terrible game to watch for the most part. It was exciting because it was kind of close, but Louisville could do nothing against that Florida State defense. Yeah, they they could do nothing. And look, Florida State's defense is really good. We said this coming into the game in the Swamp, and that proved to be true. Of course, Florida had success early, then not so much late. Louisville, though, coaching corner. Here's our only coaching corner of this episode. We'll do it right now. Louisville has the ball with a little under three minutes left on fourth down and seven from their own 28 with all three timeouts. Florida State's offense was equally as bad as Louisville's for the most part. Would you have punted there, Allen, and hoped that you get a quick three and out and then just get a new set of downs or perhaps a bad punt or perhaps a lot of different scenarios that may occur? Or did you like going for it here on fourth and seven? I don't know. They're, they're on their own 28. I'm fourth and seven short enough if you want to go for it, but I think they they have been stopping them the whole time. So I would have been I probably would have punted there. 
Yeah, I think given that Florida State's offense was also just really poor and you know you're going to get run, run, run there, I think you punt and you hope to get the ball back one last time and not find yourself in a fourth and seven, right? You have a chance not to have to end the game on fourth and seven. They didn't do it. They wind up getting three quick stops and then Florida State kicks a field goal, which knocks him out. So to me, I don't love the way Louisville handled that. It probably didn't matter. I mean, Louisville's quarterback imploded. He literally couldn't could complete even a basic pass towards the end of that game, despite the fact that Louisville was giving him some time compared to what Florida had. Uh, so either way, it's a great win by Florida State. You can't minimize how they finished the year, Allen, beating Florida with a backup and then winning a title game versus a Louisville team that had some nice wins this year. Yeah, they were game. Had some nice wins. Now, they had some bad losses, but either way, Florida State gets it done. Uh, only for the end of that broadcast to go like this with the ACC commentators saying, not actually ACC commentators, but the guys coming to the game. But hey, you know, if you watch this game and you also watch the ACC title game, you you saw the difference. They literally said that out loud at right. the end. No offense to the ACC, but you just saw the difference in like play and talent. It's just different. And they kind of were right then hinting at something that happened, which is in their eyes... You know, it's hard to justify this current Florida State edition getting in the playoff. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I thought it was funny that on that very broadcast, they were already teeing it up. They're like, yeah, you know, this maybe maybe isn't going to make it in. And I was pulling for Louisville, as I said, to for the benefit of all humanity, keeping Florida State out. They didn't do that, but the committee did their job for them. Okay, Michigan thumps Iowa 26-0. I watched maybe like two minutes of this game. Because Iowa was never going to score. Yeah, they weren't. And I had said I took Iowa because I'm like, you know, 23, it could be 20 to nothing. And it could have been 20 to nothing, but it was not. Instead, it was 26 to nothing. It's pretty close, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, so Iowa, uh, maybe they need to find a way to to get some offense and they might be they might be dangerous. All right. And a fantastic game, UGA versus Bama. Bama wins 27-24. They have just completed the circuit to come all the way back from those early season struggles and found a way to win a lot of games. Yeah, there's a good video after the game of Nick Saban talking about an adjustment they had made quickly in the game. So they came into the game thinking they were going to have a hard time stopping Georgia's running game. And Georgia's running game this year, as we know, is not actually that great. But it tells you a lot about how Bama feels about their own front seven this year, which has been, for their standards, disappointing. And then Georgia just murdered them. And so they said, forget it. We need to play, uh, in essence, what Florida likes to play with split safety, but what Florida didn't necessarily do at times, which was keep Princely in at all times to rush the passer. Georgia was flexing out Alabama's best pass rusher intentionally by formation the entire first drive to keep him out of the box. And then Nick Saban had went to the D.C. and said, forget it. We're not going to do that. We're going to keep him in there all the time. Let's play a 40 front or basically four down linemen. And they did that for the rest of the game. They played more simple. They kept stuff in front of them, but they wanted to keep their best player in the right. box. And I think we've talked about that when watching Coach Ham and other schools is sometimes you can absolutely get too creative on both offense and defense. And on paper, things that look great aren't so great when your best player is further away from making a play. And so I think one reason why Nick Saban is Nick Saban is they spent the entire week game planning for this game, Alan. They decided upon that strategy because they thought it was the best strategy. And upon watching it play out in real time, he immediately and confidently changed it right away. So no more points were able to be had. And then secondarily, you may have heard Kirby Smart at the end of the game talk about the 10 points that they gave up to Bama that shouldn't have been given up because they had a freshman linebacker in the game. 
because their veteran linebacker got injured. Right. And he blew a coverage and blew a run fit, which we've talked endlessly about on Florida's team. The issue of having to play with inexperienced and or not talented enough players is even when your scheme is perfect, like Georgia's is, if one player, if only one player does something wrong, a good team is going to punish you. So that those two things are really interesting to see play out in real time since we cover a lot of those coaching narratives. All right, did Dave Sona Steve, did he do it? Did he win the every conference championship parlay? You know, he got Liberty, and then in real time, he got an Oregon loss. <laughs> so he was he was living and dying with that moment. Uh, he got several other wins in there too, but he also had Georgia who lost, Louisville who lost, and some and some others. But you know, largely speaking, like the effort. He only bet ten bucks on that, so it wasn't like he bet the farm. He still has he still has money remaining for bowl season. So we'll see what he cooks up. All right. That now, Alan, will lead us into our postseason discussion with the playoffs. So we had multiple times pick this preseason, midseason, end season. Our preseason picks, you and I both had Georgia and Michigan and Clemson. Obviously, Clemson was a badge pick. Georgia was a fine pick, right? Right there. I also had Alabama and you had USC. Yeah. Shame on you. That's um, my Pac-12 representative pick. Right, and Pac-12 was in there. Neither you nor I had Oregon, obviously, or Washington in this, right? We didn't have that in there. And we certainly did not have Florida State competing for this. But then we did it again here at the end, and we had selected Michigan, Texas, Oregon, Georgia. So we were wrong on the Oregon, Georgia ones, but both of the winners of those games got in, which left Florida State out. Yep. Now, how do you feel? How did you feel about Florida State being left out in general? I, I do feel split on this a little bit. I I don't feel up in arms either way. I mean, the committee was had an impossible decision here, and this is it's hilarious that the you know the the fourteen playoff it hasn't ever been that controversial because often there was like who is there even a good fourth team, and this year there were six or seven teams I wouldn't mind seeing in there. The Florida State thing is really tough. I, If I were a Florida State fan, I'd like to think I would be able to see the bigger picture, but I understand why they're losing their minds here today. Now, the, the description is for best teams, and they even have a caveat for a player injury. And so, you know, there's always, like, some loops in the logic. Like, you know, they've got them ranked above Georgia, but – for five and six, but that doesn't really matter. I probably didn't think about that too much, but obviously if they're not, if you're going to drop them below Alabama, we have to drop them below Georgia too. But yeah, they're, they are clearly not as good, but I get the fact that, Hey, they haven't lost that. You have to let them prove it. But is that what anybody really wants? I mean, I, I don't know. Everyone is up in arms about it and like kind of moralizing about it, but I thought the community did the best thing they could and I think this was the right choice. I think these are the right four teams. Yeah, this is a, a Thomas Sowell comment here where there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And the reason there are no solutions to this problem is because the system of only four teams, in my opinion, was never ideal anyway. You and I have spent nine years in the podcast discussing what once was a two-team battle than a four-team battle. Should we have any playoffs at all? Should we have bigger playoffs? And I have always been a proponent of having more teams in the playoffs. And miraculously... In most years, this stuff worked itself out. It's amazing that we didn't have four or five years where this stuff occurred. And I think what's going to pour a lot of cold water on the initial very heavy frustration is that, look, we've fixed the problem. The problem is fixed. It's just happening next year. Plenty of people were aware that this was going to happen. 
The math was not good. And fortunately for us Florida fans, I hate Florida State and I don't like Georgia. So you know what? (laughs) Too bad for Florida State. But looking at the numbers, I do think, and you said that very well, what, what is the committee mandate? I do actually think they got it right based upon what you just mentioned. There is an injury caveat. It is the four best teams, which means a one loss team could be better than a different conference champion because not everyone plays everyone. Right. And now, this, if everyone played in the same conference, this would be an outright crime that should be you know, prosecuted in the courts. But let me give you some numbers here, Alan, that you can reflect on. Let's just look at them. And a lot of it has been made of one. Basically, the only stat that Florida State has in Alabama is the one that Florida State fans are talking about. And we'll talk about that in a second. But first of all, Florida State's two best wins. You ready for this? Number 13, LSU. And number 15, Louisville. Louisville. That's their second best win. Let's look at Alabama's best four wins. Number one, Georgia. Number 11, Ole Miss. Number 13, LSU. Number 21, Tennessee. With a loss to Texas. So Alabama's third best win is Florida State's best win. By far. No other team in the playoff conversation has more ranked wins than Alabama does. So if you're looking at, okay, yeah, who has better wins? This is like basketball. Who has more quad one wins? Alabama does, period. Easy. In basketball, that's important. This committee is similar. It's kind of made like the March Madness committee. Secondly, and here's the big one for me, the strength of schedule, Florida State is 55th. Michigan is 35th. Alabama is 5th. Now, you don't hear Florida State fans talking at all about their trash strength of schedule. Now, it's not their fault because they did play LSU, right? Mm -hmm. They did play Clemson, and they played Florida. They played Florida, who who should be good. Yeah. So this is not their fault. I'm not going to blame Florida State for this. See, a lot of people out there saying, well, it's your your fault, Florida State. You're playing a weak schedule. It's not their fault. They actually tried to account for that. The ACC was down this year. They can't control that either, right? It is a weaker conference than the SEC. We get to enjoy that. But this is the thing that, of course, I feel like the Florida State guy, if you will, would do. And they are doing it. And I would hope that Florida fans would not have done what Florida State fans are doing now. They are fixating on the one singular stat that is in their favor. You can look at nine or ten of these advanced scheduling stats, and eight or nine out of the ten are in favor of Alabama. The only one that isn't, the only one that is not, is strength of record. And let me tell you what that means. That means how a top 25 team would have fared on average given the exact schedule that you played. And it factors in, key point here, Alan, margin of victory. So Florida State is number three. A lot of their games, when they had Jordan Travis, although they were close for a long time, ended up as blowouts. Credit to Florida State. Alabama is number four. Alabama is number four with strength of record with the fifth hardest strength of schedule. Florida State is third strength of record with the 55th strength of schedule. What that tells you is that strength of record is carrying so heavily their margin of victory, which as we know is the least important stat when evaluating what a team has done in their weak sauce conference, see UCF and others. It doesn't really matter that much. So for Florida State fans to go nuts about this one thing, look at our strength of record. This is the big deal. We're ahead of Alabama. And ignore all the other things is disingenuous. All that being said, Alan, there was no way to make the right decision here. Leaving out an undefeated team from the ACC 
is brutal. And I think you and I can agree with this one. If Jordan Travis is not injured, Florida State is in the playoff over Alabama. I have no doubt about that. But if you and I are in that room, how in the world are you going to put in a Florida State team that offense is literally gone? They don't have an offense anymore. And they are already, on paper, along with Washington, a inferior team talent-wise by quite a significant margin to Alabama and to Georgia and even to Michigan. But now they're like completely not the same team. And I give you as a nice example of this, pick your favorite NFL football team and take away their ball or quarterback and then what the heck happens to them? Not a whole lot, right? So I think they did what was intuitive, what makes sense. It's unfortunate for Florida State that Jordan Travis got hurt. That is a really unfortunate. We talked about it on the pop on happened, but I think the committee did what is in the best interest of their mandate, which are the four best teams as they stand right now with the rosters they have entering the playoff. I just don't know how they could have put Florida State in knowing that there is almost no way they can win the playoff. Right. And this is coming from me, a guy who, who beats the drum all the time for you don't want to ever predict who's going to win because we don't know. Let the boys decide it on the field. But when you're gunned to your head, you got to take four. You can't let them play it out. Well, this is the same reason you I don't take do right. a, normally take a group of five team, even if they're quote unquote undefeated. It's like, well, who knows? They haven't lost yet. It's like, right. well, I, I get that. But we're having to make a choice here, right? And this is these are all these are opinions at the end of the day, because you're trying to do four best. There's no real rubric that you have that is like ironclad. And as you said, this happens all the time in basketball where you're, you know, you're taking, you're, you're not looking at just the win loss. You're looking at the overall composite of this team. And FSU fans would probably not want to hear this right now, but not themselves, but who was the biggest holdup for moving this 12 team playoff a year ahead? The ACC. I love it. I was waiting for you to drop that sweet little nugget. It's a sweet morsel that their own, their own stick-in-the-mud movement hurt their team. Yes, and that this was obvious at the time. Is who's going to be hurt by this delay? Probably not the SEC. I mean, it could have hurt them a little bit, but it ended up being the ACC. And, you know, they were hoisted on their own petard here, and I don't know what else to tell them, really. Uh, yeah, so I do feel for the players Certainly, right? They You want a chance. If you're a competitor, you want to get out there and prove you can. They had two games to show that they weren't the Jordan Travis show. You know, if you think about Ohio State, the year that Cardell Jones won, they played a pretty game Wisconsin team, the Big Ten title team, and blasted them. They beat them like 50 to zero, something in that range. I was like, okay, they have it. They're, they're legit. This guy's good. They're going to be able to put up points. FSU, I mean... And maybe Roadmaker is going to be back, but you look at him the previous week and you're thinking, is that going to be enough? No. No, definitely so, not. I mean, like we said, Florida had uh, lots of ways that could have won that game against a Florida State team that was limping around in the swamp. Yeah. And, you know, I get it. There's all these misincentives where Florida State should have maybe lied about Jordan Travis's injury and said, oh, maybe he'll be back. Now, we all saw how gruesome it was. So that wasn't really an option for them. But, uh, yeah. So I, it's a bad precedent, but guess what? There's no precedent anymore because we're going to a 12-team playoff, which I think will be really fun. And there might be some shenanigans around like who's the 13th team, but there's a lot less 
you can say about that. Yeah, the argument becomes very weak then because you will never have what you and I have highlighted for nine years in the pod, this scenario, a, a, a team that has not lost versus a team that's lost one game and probably played a harder schedule. That's going to be gone. That will never happen. Team 13 has always, and we've done the look at look at this before, has always had a considerably less favorable or rosy outcome at some point. They have a second loss. It generally is not great, right? Um, either way, it's not ever like what these top four teams are doing with each other. You're not splitting hairs anymore. And you get to have a fun group of five team in there to see if they yeah. can throw an upset. And then Florida State can play this out and it doesn't matter. Now, obviously, it's worth mentioning right now, what would you want to see happen here with conference championships? Because these games were put in originally to kind of give you give you an extra boost, right? Give you into right. the playoffs. I think they make should sure go your team away. is there. They should go away, right? They should go away. You don't need the rematch. They're so lucrative. They should go away, though. Uh, yeah, we don't need them. No, because here's, here's the reality. And one less game would be good for the players. And also think about this in general. This becomes weird. Football is a, a grueling, taxing sport. Yeah. Eventually, if you are a top four team and you enter that final weekend, of course, a bye will potentially be up for grabs. But let's say one of the conferences gets wise and says, wait a minute, I'm just not going to play a championship. Then I ensure my team is undefeated and they are going to be a top four seed with no real risk to their th- their threat line or risk to their quarterback or their injury or whatever else may happen. And you also prevent what is normally going to be, in a lot of conferences, a rematch of sorts, like yes. we saw with Washington, Oregon. You don't need it anymore because you have a 12-team playoff. I think they're not going to go away because they're monetarily lucrative, but I also think they're going to diminish so much in importance that perhaps one day they do. Yeah, we'll see. All right, we're going to get to our wrap up of the season. We're going to relook at our predictions. We're going to talk about all the things that happen like from a big picture perspective, but a few news and notes here. Yeah. Some big news, a big, of course, a huge week occurs from, you know, one pod episode to the other. And I want to say we are recording at three o'clock on Monday afternoons when we started this thing. So if something massive happens, we don't mention it. That is the reason why. I th- the the coaching changes that have happened thus far, Corey Raymond and Sean Spencer, defensive backs and defensive line coaches, let go. How did that land on you when you heard it? It was obviously surprising. Uh, you know, Corey Raymond was the guy that was probably the the most impactful hire that Billy made on a national landscape. Right? Look, we got this guy from LSU. He pulls in a lot of five stars. He's a good coach. And then Spencer, who I thought on film, and I've said it all year long, the D-line, I think, was was largely pretty sound for the most part. So coaching-wise, we were not highlighting them as a deficiency. In fact, Florida's best player, uh, Princely, is on the D-line. And he played really technically sound. And I think the reaction of the players themselves is often not that important because players and their bond with their coaches can sometimes be looking through like a telescope. They haven't played for 20 high-level coaches, so it's hard for them to know what's good, bad, or indifferent. But certainly there was a lot of shock and surprise, so people didn't know. I, I didn't hear too many people, Alan, suggesting these two were going to be the ones that were going to go early on. By the same token, I can easily find ways where this might make sense, right? Florida's defense was historically bad two years in a row in a lot of facets, and these two guys were both here for those things. Florida's back end had a lot of issues this season, which we talked about with regards to coverage, et cetera. The corners didn't seem to play up to their talent level really at all outside of Devin Moore, and that's what Corey Raymond is coaching. Uh, And obviously with Corey Raymond, we had highlighted the one question mark we had with him coming in 
why has this guy not done more? Why has he always been a corners coach? Is there a limitation there? Is there something to this? Is he basically a recruiter guy? Like what, what is the deal? I don't have answers to any of these questions. You and I have no inside information on what happened. Only to say this, we are now roughly a week outside the firings and we don't have new hires named yet. Despite the typical message board promises, just keep waiting. It's going to be awesome. You're going to see this glorious name. We're in great hands. And there is no name. And I want to say this. Last year, we suffered greatly because the transfer portal opened. We were super slow to do stuff. Well, now the transfer portal is opened. The recruiting signing day is two and a half weeks away. And we don't have a corners coach or defensive line coach. That seems curious. It feels like it's unbelievably important to name those two coaches yesterday. You can't spend a month figuring this out. So if you're going to fire these two guys right away, aren't you going to have somebody ready? What is going on? So my bigger concern is not that we fired these two guys. Time will tell whether that's a horrible decision or not. It's just impossible for us to know that at this stage, aside from looking at film and saying it could be good or bad. But yeah, I am concerned that this seems to be going at a glacial pace again when minutes matter here. Not even days, minutes matter here for holding the recruiting class together, keeping a vision of what's happening in the future, assuring your boosters that are funding your payroll that you're in the right hands, you have a good plan, you can hire talented people. They still want to come into Florida where it could be a sinking ship. We got nothing. So that part concerns me the most. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you can see both sides. You made a good point there that the defense is obviously not played up to what they would want to. You know, Corey Raymond was a huge coup when Billy got him to come from LSU. And his reputation as a recruiter and for putting guys in the NFL – and yet there's some results still to be left desired. I, I don't know if that, if I want to lay that at the feet of, you know, Corey Raymond, Sean Spencer also, you know, I think our defensive line has played well, hasn't been the dominant force you would like necessarily. So there's, of course there's gaps there, but you know, in recruiting wise, obviously some of our most high profile recruits from last year were defensive linemen. There's some guys this year that had some guys decommit. So it's hard to and again, this feels one of those things like there's probably more to the story than we know. And this is either a very wise decision or a very unwise decision. I have no idea. Um, depending on who you bring in and what, what happens moving forward, really tell the tale. It really will. And let's let's you know break the news that's already broken, right, and discuss this for a second. Is obviously that Sean Spencer is is the new D-line coach at A&M mm-hmm. under Mike Elko, who is a well-established, extremely good defensive coordinator, now head coach. But if there's a guy who knows defense, Mike Elko's right up there in all of college football. I think everybody would agree on that. And he immediately nabs the guy Florida fires. This is not an offensive guy getting right, a defensive guy. This is a guy who knows defense, who says, oh, I'm immediately hiring this guy. So there could be a lot of things that we are not privy to. There could be conflict between Coach Ham and Spencer and, and Raymond. There could be Billy Napier saying, whatever, I don't know. I have no information. I have no idea who said what behind where. I'd love to know. It'd be fascinating. But again, you've already got Sean Spencer landing at a school that paid $75 million to fire their coach, just hired Mike Elko, and now immediately plucks a D-line coach off a bad Florida defense. So it's not like Sean Spencer is taking a downgrade job here, Alan. So optics, optics are a lot to this Florida team where we're struggling with optics. 
you have to scratch your head and say you let a guy go who immediately gets picked up by A&M by a really good defensive mind, that raises more questions. It does. And again, I, I can get behind this if it moves in the right direction. It just remains to be seen if that's true. But you start thinking about defensive coaches. You 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 know, Jay Bateman was the guy coming off last year. You're like, okay, he's probably gone. But a ton of our best recruits are at the linebacker position. So you're not necessarily like wanting to slide him off the team. But I, I don't know. Um I don't know what the answer is. We'll we'll see what the staff looks like moving forward. This is gonna be a big question mark over the next couple of weeks. And as you said, timing is really crucial in this part of the calendar and yeah they haven't really jumped into anything we'll talk about the portal in a second here but that that, and this is you know this is a time and a place where being first and not lagging behind is crucial yeah because uh, imagine that you're a top defensive recruit you're a corner you're a lineman what do you what is happening right now who's going to be coaching me trust us we got a great guy we can't tell you who Okay, well, when are you going to announce that week? We don't know yet. we got to wait till the NFL season is over. Let's say something crazy like that, right? Are these guys going to stick around for an unknown on a team that went 6-7 and seven and 5-7 and seven and is being successfully negatively recruited across the board? I mean, you're just increasing your risk quotient significantly. So we're going to follow this very closely. But again, I am concerned. I am raising a, a significant yellow flag into the sky. And saying, if this were me running this football team, I would not fire two guys and then wait a long time to name their replacements. That raises questions. It shows weakness, in my opinion. And I don't think Florida can be showing any weakness right now when they're trying to hold together this recruiting front. All right. Speaking of holding things together, let's talk about the portal. The portal. I'll just open by saying I hate I hate college football with regards to what it's become with one-year free agency, with the portal. I've covered it in depth before. I'm not going to go on another fresh rant here. I just want to let you all know that I hate what this game is becoming. It's a bunch of mercenaries flying around for money. You look at how many quarterbacks have entered the portal this year from top teams. It's easy. They're between $1.5 and $2 million per year, potentially, depending on where they go. When if they went in the NFL right now, they're worth probably six hundred grand. Some of these guys aren't even going to play in the NFL. Yeah. And this is the most backwards, jacked up thing that can exist. It's broken. It's it's stupid. But we're all dealing with it. And now we have to sit here and cross our fingers and wonder which Florida players are leaving. We're looking at you, ETN. Who knows? Perhaps Trey Wilson is next. I have no idea. Anyone is up for grabs. Anyone can go anywhere. So update us on what's been happening here, Alan. Yeah. um, I think you're right. I I don't think either of us object to the players getting paid. So I don't think that's the problem. No money. I love the NFL. It's my favorite sport. And those guys get paid. I don't, it doesn't bother. Right. So it's more of the chaos of the transfer portal and no contracts, no loyalty. There's no loyalty to anything other than yourself and the money you can make in a six month period. And then repeat cycle, do it again. Yeah. It's just not good for the overall game itself. I think even though it's, you know, (laughs) hasn't hurt the ratings at all. Okay. So we're going to walk through each player here. And I'm going to give a little commentary on like maybe whether this is hurts Florida, is indifferent, or maybe helps Florida. Okay. And okay. you can chime in as well. Okay. I so, like this. Jonathan Odom mentioned him last week, tight end. Uh, I think this helps Florida. I think he's wasn't going to factor into their future, even as a another body in the room probably isn't that helpful. Clears up a scholarship spot. And helps because we do need attrition 
to, right. to, That's the thing. to bring helps. in the high school recruits that we want and potentially the transfer portal guys we need. We actually do need the attrition. So therefore, we have to have some guys leave. Yes. So Kamari Wilson, this was very widely expected, widely expected. You know, his profile would tell you this really hurts Florida. The fact that he hasn't been able to see the field at all means that he's going to leave. This probably is. I'll put this in the helpful category. Yeah, I'll put it there too. Now, you know, I love to have film on guys so you can definitively say, mm-hmm. hey, the film says this guy's not very good. We have so little on him that we have to then echo what we can hear from inside sources, which I never like to do because oftentimes they're not right. If you listen to the program, guys, if you listen to Dan Mullen, you know, half the guys in the team weren't playing because of XYZ reason. They were better players. We chronicled that throughout the tenure. So, with Napier, more guys play, and everybody seemingly played on defense but Kamari. And, you know, I think it was kind of well known that they were going to move him out once he sort of yep. did what he did in the early season. I think he knew it, and he remained, a, a, let's call it like a faithful teammate to just check enough boxes so that he maximized his transfer value later rather than give himself a big black eye and sort of the hazard tag. But, yeah, I'm with you. From everything we've heard, they couldn't find a way to play him at safety or linebacker, and he was really just stuck. And so this should be helpful. All right, Max Brown. I'm going to say put this in the neutral category. And again, there's there's good and bad reasons for every player to transfer. Sometimes like, this is unwise. What are you doing? Or sometimes like, yeah, this is good. This is probably a a good move for you. Max Brown, I think this is probably a good move for him. You know, you have Graham Mertz coming back. That's in the news category that we didn't mention, but Graham Mertz coming back. And then, you know, you have presumably Lagway coming in. So he's the odd man out. I think this would be helpful for him to have another Q. We're going to have to find another QB somewhere. He's proven that he can come in and be a little, you know, effective for Florida. He's probably not the future. But I think you would take him if he wanted to stay. So probably this is a net neutral here. Yeah, you want to have a, it's great to have a third quarterback as a program guy in case you encounter what Florida State's running into. Of course, in the NFL – there's only two quarterbacks on your roster every week. And right. the third I, guy is a practice squad guy, but you can't do that in college, obviously. And for Max, I think it's pretty simple. Does Max leave if he doesn't get the chance to start any football games? Maybe, maybe not. He has no tape. Now he had tape and he did some things, right? I mean, like you, you saw it on the film review. The guy's a gifted zone zone runner and, and zone read option play. And you can you can go to a lesser school and just run that system and be pretty effective for him. He can yeah. find ways to at least play. And so I get it. That makes sense. But yeah, as a team, you know, it's not it, it's it's not too difficult to go get uh, perhaps a guy who's not going to be able to play in the NFL, but wants to get into coaching or something else like that, but wants to come spend a year being a third string guy. Right. There are those guys out there. The reason this is neutral is because you you can find a guy at his replacement and you could also potentially find a guy with much higher upside. Right. You can take another high school player. Or you can take a guy who's been a freshman summer, wants to come in or whatever. So I, I think this could hurt. We'll see. You know, if you have two injuries at quarterback and you're playing a walk-on, then... No, then you're dead. And yeah. you're, you're kind of dead anyway. But yeah, to the point is you don't really want to lose guys who spend a lot of time developing, but also for Max, he was never supposed to play. Mm-hmm. So I'm with you on that category. You don't, you'd love to have him, ideal world. I think Billy says I'd like this guy to stay until he graduates. But yeah. I think realistically you say, okay, that's not really going to affect the the output of next year's season. If we have to play our third stringer, we're dead anyway. Yep. Yeah. All right, Will Norman, defensive lineman from last year's class, a four-star guy. This is an interesting one because, as you said, you want attrition, but I think this hurts Florida. He Again, I have no idea. He didn't play at all this year, so he wasn't some guy who was 
you know, showed a ton and they played. Um, but his profile would suggest he's a guy you would like to have and keep in the program. So I think this this hurts for him. He's the type of guy that you're looking to bring in if, you know, he was in the recruiting class last year. Yeah, he was, again, a four-star guy, highly touted by some services. This is something I'll say every year. We follow recruiting in the macro on this show. Recruiting right. is the lifeblood of every program. But the reason that I like to be a, quote, stargazer is you need a bunch of these guys because a certain number of them are going to fail every single year. And is Will Norman a guy who's a failure? It's too early in his career. Right, he could go somewhere know. else and be an all-pro. Is he a late bloomer? Who knows? I don't know. No one knows. We don't know. But what you know is you need to have enough of these guys so that when some of these guys leave, hopefully, hopefully, you as a human have gotten your evaluations correct during the season to make a good estimate that, hey, the odds of this guy getting it, even though he's physically very talented, are perhaps lower. And therefore, that's why I'm not playing him, right? And that's a reasonable thing. And then you root for the guy as he leaves and you hope he figures it out because you recognize how you might not crack a rotation here. So all speculation there, but you don't want to lose highly touted guys. But again, you have to expect that some of these highly touted guys just are not going to reach their actual capabilities. Right. And who knows about him? I mean, he it could just be, right, he's, he's excellent and we would love to have him. Or it's like, hey, we're fine with him leaving. We don't know at this point. Okay, next, Caleb Douglas. This one hurts. Florida is very thin at receiver. This is a guy who had emerged as a potentially very productive guy, was a starter. Florida does not have a lot of depth at receiver. This one hurts. No, this hurts. And this is an indictment in my mind about the lack of air yards that Florida threw for this year, right? Caleb Douglas frequently getting man-to-man matchups, almost never getting the ball thrown to him. When it was thrown to him, he, he pretty much yoked the guy like every time, including when he got hurt, which is on a sweet catch towards the goal line that ended his season. And I have no idea why he's leaving, but I have to imagine as a wide receiver, at some point you're looking and saying, do I want my A dot, you know, my average depth of target to be, you know, five yards and, and one deep ball every three games? Or do I want to go somewhere else where perhaps I get the ball a lot more? Now he is not, Caleb Douglas is not like a five-star no. baller receiver so the second part of that is it's it's a little odd like he's a feature guy for florida he may not crack anybody's starting outside receiver rotation at a different school so you're lighting your capital you have with a team that knows you on fire to where you're probably going to be a starter next year to start over where you may not even crack the rotation at all so he's taking a risk but i think that must show you that he's frustrated with how florida is utilizing him as a receiver and I'm frustrated, of course, with Florida's passing game in general. It did get better after he was out, not because he was out. So you could have thought, hey, Florida seems to be doing things that maybe will get better in future seasons. Perhaps we have a new OC. There's a lot of ways things could get better. And again, without talking to these guys, we don't know. But that is definitely in the Hurts category. Sure. And again, we're speculating on we have no we have no idea. We're just so trying to it, give you an idea of like what maybe could be possible yeah, without knowing a thing. Just where it. I think as much as like, you know, we can talk, we can talk about how that affects Florida's roster, at least in the moment here. And again, some of these guys are like, I want to go back home. You know, it has nothing to do with the situation. It could be a great situation. They're just, I want to go live in Texas and okay. Or whatever. I have no idea. All right. Next Chris McClellan. This is squarely in the Hertz category. This is a guy who flashed a ton as a freshman, played a lot as a freshman, didn't take as big as leap as I wanted him to as a sophomore, but, was a co-starter 
big athletic guy, the guy eventually you could see, you know, playing in the NFL. And this one feels crazy to me. I have no idea like why there's no reason on the surface why he would leave or why Florida would want him to leave. You mean like losing a defensive line coach may influence that? Sure. But there's not like a snaps, like <laughs> kind of, there's not a situation like Max Brown or Kamari Wilson was like, clear this guy is going to No, leave. But maybe if your D line coach leaves and you like him a lot, you leave. I don't know. Yes. We don't know. We have no idea. Sure. Honestly. But this one definitely hurts. Yeah, I agree. I saw some people say very casually, like, oh, whatever. He didn't have the grade of a season. See ya. And I'm like, man, we are in such a bad place as a fan base because you don't want to play freshmen and sophomores. If you don't have to, you rather play juniors and seniors. Ideally, in the modern game, mostly juniors, because your players are good enough that they leave after that, right? right. But you don't want to... I mean, D-linemen are guys you build up over time. And look at Princely. Their best years come when they're a little older. So to spend two years pouring into this guy, and then he goes somewhere else where he's absolutely 100% going to be the best version of himself, and Florida fans go, no big deal, nothing to see here. That's crazy. No, it's killer. It's, crazy. it's killer for another reason, too. I mean, it's... If we were taking this, let's imagine Chris McCullough comes out of the portal at, I don't know, let's say another premier portal. Let's say he comes out at like Oklahoma. We'd be like, we'd be jumping at taking him. All over the place. Yeah, absolutely. Size-wise, physicality, his gifts that he has, his first step, all that stuff. Again, that's just from the profile. We don't know about the person. Or and we have film on him. And again, I think even this year, I think that he was he was solid in a lot of regards. He made some big plays even towards the end of the year. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't understand the casual dismissal of him by some fans. Other than that, there just seems to be factions and message boards that exist together. And there's a lot of groupthink. So if some guy says this and everyone's like, yeah, I heard it. This is true. He sucks. I'm like, okay, whatever. But that's sure. a big loss. I doubt this is the guy that Florida was pushing out the door. No, so. I don't think they're happy about that one. All right. Lastly, Andrew Savanea. This one will put in the probably helps category again i don't want to be too crass with that that sounds like potentially bad but if you're just looking at a roster construction you know came in as a defensive lineman switched over to tight end hadn't really seen the field he's probably a guy who needs to play at a potentially different level or maybe he's a late bloomer but it doesn't really affect florida's roster dynamics at all correct yeah no it does not and again the helps thing is not this is this is i want to come back to a principle we've talked about before in business one of the best things you can do in your organization with whatever you're doing is to actually move people into positions to fit them better, which sometimes mean you fire them. Sometimes it means you switch them departments, but like if someone is not productive within your organization and you don't think they have future productive value for you, Alan, it's often best to move them somewhere else. You sit them down and say, look, you know what? I love what you're giving me. I love the effort. I think you might be better suited somewhere else. I think that you might get more production in a different organization. It might be a step down in competition. Whatever the case may be, you're actually helping that person out. And that's that's part of your job, I think, as a coach, is to make sure that these kids have a limited window to play football. And if they're not going to be a guy you think is ever going to play for you, and they're not a walk-on, then you should try to move them into a spot where they can actually play. So for me, I think it can be helpful for both parties if you get these things right. I think that's kind of the hope. Right. And so that's it for portal entries thus far. I kind of expected more today. Now, it doesn't mean you have a pretty large window to do this. It doesn't mean you have to jump in immediately. Um, it's also not a guarantee all these guys will leave, technically. Being in the portal doesn't mean you are gone. It means that they don't, your scholarship is now up for grabs. But I assume we'll at least see some more attrition along the Ad- Andrew Savanea line. Um, and 
I'm sure there'll be some more painful attrition as well. Already been some, obviously, as we've talked about. And, you know, there's much rumored about ETN. Is he going to stay? Is he going to go? Uh, as of 4 o'clock right now, we don't have any info on that. No, we don't. And obviously, just the fact that ETN's looking at places like Georgia or LSU or others. You know, he's in a timeshare with Montrell, who's also productive. He's Florida's best home run hitter as a running back. And, and just, again, it, optics-wise, you know, you can lose guys like this if you're Alabama or Georgia and they decide they don't want to be in a timeshare or they want to win. But we're losing if you're losing, your culture is not a long-term good culture, right? Show me a good culture, and it's not a loser. Eventually, it's a winner. And I'm sure ETN is sick of losing. I'm sure he's also sick of only getting 12 carries a game. And now they're doing their best to convince him to stay here. Hopefully, he does. But it's just a crazy world that we live in, right, where you have to you have to do this. And we've said this before, Alan. It might be true for Billy. If Billy doesn't make it, it might go on his Florida tombstone that covid and the changing college football rules that occurred at the start of covid just don't work for who billy wants to be because so because he might not be that way right it's a different game than it was 2019 is not what it is now it's an entirely different landscape and you know the methods you use the things you believe in the system you want to create it might not work it's a grand experiment everyone's trying to figure it out but right now, obviously, losing a guy like ETN, a guy that Napier handpicked and selected and is groomed, I'm sure you'd feel personally very distraught right. about that as a head coach. That one would feel a, like a personal hit. So there's two aspects like to this, right? So ETN, one, should not really care about the number of carries that he's getting. He's already put on enough tape that is draftable right now. If he was draftable, or you could argue fewer carries would and fewer help carries, his NFL like, career. Yeah, less mileage is actually a, a tick in your favor. But if, if playing time is an issue. And we don't know that it we is. Don't know Speculating that it is. Speculating again. Yes. If if that is an issue, and obviously like the coaches, I don't know. <laughs> like you don't want to I don't want to promise playing to some time to somebody's earned it, but he should be getting the bulk of the carries. If that is not gonna happen, then he has you know, there's a there's at least a discussion that needs to be had. But this is like a team game, right? He's not getting benched. He's, you know, it's a 50-50 split. It doesn't necessarily should be, but I don't know if that's a thing to be upset about. Who knows? Okay. Staying, uh, Cam, Jack- Cam Jackson. Uh, Cam Jackson, defensive tackle, announced that he's going to stay. He's not going to turn pro. That's a big win for Florida. Huge. That's a huge win right, <laughs> right there for Florida. And hopefully he's able to keep, you know, some of the recruits and just some other people on board because him staying is a major confidence boost for what Florida might be doing on defense next year. And Kingsley has announced that he is going to enter the draft. So good luck to him. I think this is, you know, this is probably have a tough call whether this is neutral or hurts Florida. Like I think you always would take experienced SEC lineman. He's probably run his course here and it's fine to like graduate. I don't, him staying probably doesn't move the needle that much considering when he played and when he didn't play this year. Again, you'd rather you'd always rather have experienced SEC linemen on your roster than not. And the guy you're gonna bring in is probably not gonna be as good as he is. But I don't think it moves the needle as much as it 
might considering where Florida's at currently. Yeah, I don't think it does just because Slaughter came in at center and eventually you didn't notice really any difference by the end of the year. We looked for it. We thought originally, hey, Kingsley might be a guy you have to have on the O-line. And then that just really wasn't true. They're and really, he wasn't healthy all year. So if he comes back, I think that's that could be good news. Oh, it would be helpful. It would yeah. be helpful to have him back, correct. But I think like, you know, we need tackles in the worst way possible, right? Center with Slaughter. Neither of these guys feel like a heavy plus kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're trying to say. Now, you, we need all the linemen we can get. Don't get me wrong there. Um, but obviously, at center, Slaughter on film seemed to be more or less what Kingsley was this year. It's interesting to me he's going pro. I'd be really fascinated to see if he makes it as a pro, given what he's put on film at Florida, where he seems to be an average center in the SEC, which generally does not translate to playing in the NFL. But just gut again the nfl can have different views than i do that he's a udfa guy undrafted free agent right guy with that's a what chance i'm saying to make a roster but if you're done playing college football and you're not going to improve your stock that much yeah but it's interesting it. now though right because if he doesn't make it he has no money that's Where if he true. stays at florida he actually has some money it's curious different world different world with the nil but either way he's out all right with that let's take a break to do some live reads All right, AG1 is your daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. It is not a green drink, although it does look green. It mixes multiple things together, uh, four or five supplements plus a few more in reality to make it a one-stop shop that tastes surprisingly nice. I like to drink mine in the morning before breakfast as it makes me feel like I have given my body exactly what it needs to start the day optimally. If a comprehensive solution is what you need and are looking for from your supplement routine, then try AG1 today and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Simply go to drinkag1.com GNFP. That's drinkag1.com GNFP. Check it out. It's in our podcast description with the link right there. All right. Also, Alan, it is time again to talk about our friend and longtime podcast listener, Corey Amira and Amira Custom Homes. Corey handles the entire process from start to finish on the builds. It's not simply the person you talk to and then you don't see him again until the end. He is there from the drafting phase. He does all the pricing. He's on site every single day, making sure the project runs smoothly and exactly as you want it. Corey specializes, of course, in design, build, custom homes. You can bring your idea, and they will get to work on drafting a plan based upon the exact specifications and needs. Corey builds all different style of homes, country, modern, craftsman, South Florida style, etc., and they are competent in all of them. He does not just build one style of homes. He custom builds the home to your liking. There is a six-month waiting time or so to get started on actual construction, so keep that in mind if you have your plans but the project typically can get done within six months to a year after that. If you are looking for a custom home to fit your needs and desires and you are in Alachua, High Springs, Gainesville, Jonesville, Newberry, Fort White, or Trenton, Corey Amira is your guy. Check out his previous custom builds at amiracustomhomes.com. That's Amira, A-M-I-R-A, customhomes.com. And now, Alan, as you have done so well, tell us one more time about our good friend Josh Judy and Fearless Sour Negotiation. I'd love to. So here on the pod, we talk all the time about using a mix of optimal and exploitive strategy to get the best possible results for every situation. Well, that philosophy can be used on and off the field. And our longtime friend, Josh Judy, 
aka Statboy, if you've been around long enough, can help you find the perfect strategy to optimize your next job offer. Josh is a salary negotiation coach for high earners, and he's worked with all types of experienced professionals to optimize their job offers from Fortune 5 companies like Google to startups to hospitals and everything in between. If you're a high earner who's making a move soon, you should absolutely work with Josh to negotiate your job offer to make sure that when you put your head on the pillow after that first day of your new job, you know you didn't leave anything on the table and your compensation package is as good as it can be. You can find Josh over at fearlesssalarynegotiation.com. Click the get one-on-one help button to learn more about his coaching offering and make sure to tell him that you heard about him on the pod. Fearlesssalarynegotiation.com is where you want to be when, excuse me, is where to go when you want to be absolutely sure you're getting paid what you're worth and you will feel that way. I'm confident if you get in touch with Josh, it's a slam dunk. Go for it. Yeah, Josh, I hope that any of the players that are listening to this podcast do not select you because that means that they're leaving and going somewhere else. So we don't want you to get that max dollar to go play for Georgia or LSU. So please don't answer their phone calls. Okay, let's move on to more of the season recap portion of our app here. Okay, let's start with this. A fun one. What was your highlight of the season? What was the best moment of the season for you? <laughs> I mean, there weren't many, but obviously for me, it was it was beating Tennessee um, in the swamp. You know, that, that that's... That's the highest thing that happened for me as an overall game point. We looked nice in the first half of that game. The defense played its best game of the season against a quality opponent. And there was reason at that point in time to believe that Florida could win seven or eight games this year and we'd start moving in the right direction. That, for me, was the high point. The South Carolina comeback win was an emotionally important win. But I think if I look back on it, I mean, obviously we knew South Carolina wasn't that good. That was more of like, man, we needed that because we might lose all the rest of our game. So Tennessee, I think if you look at the season, that's the high point and everything sort of just went downhill on almost a consistent rolling basis until the end of the year from there. Right. I think I will go without South Carolina win just because of the dramatic nature of it and how crazy it was and the fourth down conversion, tip pass, touchdown, just as kind of an emotional catharsis a little bit to get that road win. And yeah, you're hoping that this was like, okay, we stole one here moving in a little bit direct, different direction. As you said, even coming back from that Kentucky loss sets us up nicely here. And that wasn't really the case, but it was the last good moment. Maybe that's why it feels like the highlight. All right. The low point, lots to choose from here. So I don't many know quite. I, somewhere in the Florida state game, you know, maybe I'll pick the trick play not working in hindsight, which is hilarious because every other team has run that successfully in the last two weeks of must've been something that coaches picked up on film. That was a fun thing. Somebody did because everybody ran it. And most of the time, fairly successfully, we did not. And yeah, I had a chance to beat your rival there and knock them out of the playoff, which they are knocked out anyway. Um, there's a few more options on the table here. Which one would you go for? Yeah, there are. It is that that play is so funny. We broke it down on film. We talked about it in the podcast. Uh, Purdue had run it, you know, early on, I mean, like many years ago, they had run it. Other teams have used similar concepts of it before. It's, you know, a small wrinkle from a, a double reverse pass, but it was outrageous that it was like the play of the month. Is there like a, is there like an insider you, a mag you subscribe to that shows you trick plays of the month and like every coach gets this and they all throw it in their playbook? I mean, it was kind of uncanny, but what wasn't uncanny is how the other teams ran that play with proper spacing, speed, 
and execution when it comes to the backside block and the quarterback rolling into the middle of the field field. to get away from where the defense would be, which we talked about extensively on that play. And so again, to me, and I said this on our thread, Alan, and I know Tyler doesn't like it whenever I say anything about Billy's offensive system, but the reality is if you're the coordinator and you're running a trick play, and trick plays are very different than a regular play, and here's the reason why. A trick play has almost no new variable to it. You're not reading the defense. You are literally running this trick play, which you've practiced probably 30 times in practice exactly. And nothing Florida State did to Florida changed that play at the crucial points of it. The reverse was clean. Double reverse should have been clean, but was not. It was slow. The toss wasn't good. And then the positioning of Max Brown was not good. So who do you blame on that one? Well, to me, it's the coordinator. Like if you practice that with detail, the team runs that play with detail. Now other teams made that work. We didn't. Whatever. For me, the low point, I would have thought it was going to be Arkansas because we needed that game badly. Mm-hmm. And to lose at home to that team, that's 4-8, and eight, bad. But for me, it was it was the 4th and 17 yep. with Missouri. That was, the, that was the most emotional moment of the year for me. Like, that actually hurt when we, when we gave that up. That hurt because Florida had deserved <coughs> to win that game against a Missouri team that was good and is good this season. And that would have been a nice win, and Florida would have been in a slightly different place emotionally but that that was the culmination of like everything that was florida this season losing that game in that fashion brutal it was brutal okay i've we've i think we've asked this question almost every year and the question is was this a successful season obviously only one team ends up with a championship that's not the metric that we're using here (laughs) Was this a successful season? And I'm going to put a big incomplete on it. Okay, from on the field perspective, certainly no. But if Florida closes here, this is a big if, with a top five, a tier one-ish recruiting class and does well in the portal, I think I'll call it a success because that's the goal is that you're building to, not necessarily where you went six and five or five and seven or six and six or five and seven. Now, that feels crazy to stay at a place like Florida, but I'll take it if it gets us steps towards the future. So I'm going to put an incomplete in here, and you can yell at me if you want. But, I mean, the the more obvious choice is no, but I'll go with incomplete. No, I mean, I I like what your rationale was for why. Uh, You're highlighting the part of the stool that that obviously is the most important that we've said and mm-hmm. is is ha- has been thus far up until today successful and we have to finish it out to get across the the, fin- the goal line here to make sure we don't give up fourth and 17 to lose our recruits right but for me Vegas set this season at five and a half you and I had said it could be anywhere between four and eight was the realistic range which I think looking back on it is exactly right and we got five but we always say the style is the most important. And I think for me, in some ways, there were some small shiftings of things that occurred. There were route concepts I liked better as the year went on. We used Trey more. We used ETN at certain points a little bit more, maybe not as much as I wanted. The defense schematically, although, again, a lot of really bad-looking numbers, I think there's reasons to believe a lot of what the defense did. It would be very high-ceiling level play. If we get things ironed out. So there's reasons to be optimistic, but all in all for me, this is an abject failure of a season. Uh, Billy Napier did not, in my opinion, instill any extra confidence in him or the staff. He, he lost it. He regressed with confidence. And when I talk about style, I talk about a style of a team, what it looks like on the field, how it develops as the year goes on. That is what gives you confidence for the future. 
And if I ask myself from August to now, am I more confident in Billy, the same or less confident? I am less confident in him being the guy than I was before. And that for me means all things considered, this was not a successful season. This was not season two where I'm hopeful for the future. It's season two where I'm thinking season three is going to be really bad. and It might be the end of Billy Napier. And I think Florida could have went five and seven. And I could have actually felt differently depending on how the coaching was consistently with all the things we've already covered all year long. I don't need to rehash them. So for me, I'm going to go with this was a failure of a season. And it could be, to your point, a miracle of a recruiting close given just how ugly things were for Florida on the field now with Billy Napier with a losing record as a football coach to pull in what will be the highest rated class since Napier. I mean, sorry, since um, Urban is significant. So to your point, that is what could we could look back on this and say this was the beginning of, of Napier's reign is he held this class together, an urban level class, despite the sky falling on the field. And that is, I think, what you're alluding to. And uh, obviously, we'll see what holds up and what happens in the future. But for me, this is a fail of a season. All right, why don't you walk us through our preseason predictions and awards here? All right, we had some good stuff on here. We obviously missed on a big one, but breakout players, we had listed Austin Barber, Andy Jean, LOL to that one for me. Jakeem Jackson, who saw the field some, but didn't really do a whole lot this season. And then Chris McClellan, funny enough, that's the expectations we had for him. So again, he did fall short of the expectations we had for him, but still could have been great. We did not name Trey Wilson, although we did name Trey Wilson. You we talked did, about him. You just picked Andy We Jean did instead. say that Trey Wilson was the obvious candidate for this, and we were trying to go. I was trying to go deeper than what was the more obvious one. In retrospect, I should have just stuck with the obvious one. Well, I think you thought as well that he would basically lose snaps to Ricky. He would lose some snaps slot. to Ricky and that Andy Jean would play on the outside, which we desperately needed. But turned out to be, obviously, that Trey Wilson, of course, is the, Definitely breakout, the breakout player. player. That's and a layup. Is there, I guess, Jordan Castell would be the one defensively here? I don't even think so because he, he was mean, so poor. The of the year yeah, sure. I think coverage-wise, yes. But he's so poor right now at tackling and run fit and other stuff. It's hard to say that he broke out. He yeah, I would say the guys that took a, a step forward were Shamar James and Princely. Obviously, they were good before. And I'd say Jaden Hill. And Jaden Hill, you know. He was a known guy, but I mean, he yeah. was he was our most consistent back-end defensive player. That's good so, one. yeah, those are the three guys. And, were, you know, Barber played well, reasonably well. I was hopeful he could become an all-SEC kind of yeah, guy. Yeah. I don't think left tackle is in his future. No. And, you know, Jakeem Jackson, obviously, he played. He didn't – he was behind a ton of people. Yeah. And he looked – I think yeah. for what it's worth, I think he's got – a really high ceiling. Oh, for sure. I like so, him a lot. It just was, but yeah, a lot of depth there for him to right. play under. And then obviously Florida's insistence on remaining true to Kimber for such a long part of the season, despite his performance is also interesting. Uh, okay. Anyone who could have been an all American, we listed Ricky, Trevor, Etienne, Jason Marshall, pretty funny there with Jason Marshall performance this year. And then we did name Princely. And I think we did say that Princely was the most likely to get it. If he was going to get it, that was our opinion there. And he is so far. We don't know who's going to be an All-American. The team's not out yet. But Princely has been named to the All-SEC team, first team on USA Today. He's the only Florida Gator who got that. So is he going to make an, an All-American team? No, he's not. No. The stats aren't there. The talent was there. I think he could have on a different team. Uh, but I think him just getting the All-SEC honors is remarkable at that spot given Florida's defensive struggles. And he was uber consistent all year long on film. The guy was absolutely fantastic. 
So well-deserved for him to get that accolade and for him to get recognized by the writers at that level. Uh, but I think we named, looking at the seasons, Ricky, Trevor, Princely were solid, and then obviously Trey Wilson would have been the, the other guy you'd probably stick in there. All right, over-unders. Here's some good stuff, Alan. Points per game on offense. We just stuck with the basic stats entering into the year uh, because these are the easiest ones to kind of just have a conversation about. Of course, success rate something you're going to keep hearing us follow on the pod. But points per game on offense. Previous season was 29.5, good for 57th. Uh, yards per play was, we had uh, six yards per play, which is 29th. And then points per play we were 45th. So we were 57th, 29th, and 45th on offense. This year, the over-under we had set at 29.5, right? Points per play, a very disappointing 26.5. So we dropped three whole points from 2022 to 2023. I had barely over that number and you had under. So you got that one correct. Thoughts on the 26.5 points per game on offense? Yeah, that's not a good one. That's not enough. I heard heard at the end there, obviously without Graham Mertz, you would have scored some more points in that last game, presumably. But uh, yeah, I went under and that was right. Yeah, this is partially due to Florida's defense, obviously uh, struggling. But but really, Florida had a great top 25 time of possession. A stat that we've also talked about, I mean, way early on in our podcast, I talked about time possession being, in my opinion, such a dumb thing to care about as a football coach. Now you can go too far where you leave your defense on the field all the time, but it is like such an old school, stupid thing to care about. And that's true, by the way, go look up what teams win and time of possession is, is not really a factor at all anymore. Other things are way more important. Um, so Florida's good at that, but not much else because Florida actually had the ball a lot. Couldn't get in the end zone. As we all know, they had issues on third down. That's really what killed them. That's what killed this number was largely third down passing downs Florida suffered and that's where that number suffered but you called that correctly passing wise though passing wise Mm. Richardson finished with 2,549 last season and we had set the over under right there at 2,500 I took the under you took the over and Graham Mertz threw for 2,900 yards basically if he plays that last game he goes over 3,000 yards which is awesome which is great, especially in this offense that barely throws the ball down the field. So you're getting a lot of short east-west yards after catch, but productive there. Touchdowns, the line for uh, last year was 17. So we set the line at 16. Passing perhaps will be one less. Yes, passing touchdowns, one less. I went slight over, you went slight under, and I hit that 120 number of passing touchdowns this year from Grim Mertz. That's a good number. Yeah, fine number for sure. This number is amazing. Interceptions. We had nine with AR. We set the over-under right there because Mertz also had thrown a bunch of picks at his time. I took slight over. You took slight under. Mertz only threw three picks. We threw five picks total, but only three came from Mertz. That's a remarkable year for Mertz. 20 TDs, three touchdowns. I mean, three interceptions in the offense, obviously very solid. Right, and as we documented as well, two of those were tip yeah. balls that... Right in their hands that should at least go in completion if yeah. nothing else. So really one true pick, which is great, which is a great 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 work there by your quarterback again should he be more risky yes but was he given a lot of opportunities to be not with that offensive line not really thousand yard rusher last year montrell 841 etn 719 we set that over under at 1000 we both took the over and we were both wrong we thought that etn was going to emerge as the lion's share of the lead carries he didn't get it and this is also pretty remarkable numbers this year montrell 817 etn 753 so almost the same as last year, almost identical production from the running game, despite the fact there's no doubt Allen this year's offensive line 
was not as good as last year's, yet the production was. Right, that's so interesting because I would have said a major weakness of this team is they cannot run the ball in the ways that they want to for the most part. Now, they had games where they ran it really well. Each of them had big plays at times. So this number is not crazy. But, yeah, I think if they've been able to run the ball in the same kind of way, they probably both go over 1,000. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think with last year, with last year's offensive line, both these guys are probably cracking a thousand. I think you're right. Or they're right there. Yeah. There's yeah. four. There's 400 more rushing yards there for sure. Oh, yeah. Time. Yeah. Like, are there at least like right there? In the they're league. right there. Yeah. Would we have a 700 yard <laughs> receiver? We used to just laugh at this for a while, given where Florida was. And Ricky Pierce was at 661. We said yes, both of us over under, and he. Finished this year, Ricky did it 974. It's really a shame he doesn't get 1,000. He would have gotten 1,000 with Mertz almost for sure. Uh, just short of that. But, uh, yeah, Ricky goes way over that. Way over. Great job by him. So this is what's funny. You look at those rushing numbers. You look at the picks. You look at the TDs, the passing yardage. Yeah, that Florida's 26.5 points per game is seems kind of weird. They should have had more points considering that level of production, I think. Yeah, and that's what shows you a lot about the issue with with Florida's point totals this season is that despite having the ball a lot, despite having a lot of yardage production, could not get the ball in the end zone. And that, after all, is how, of course, you score points at a high high clip. All right, defensive ranking. Here's a fun one. At the end of the year, Mm -hmm. would they be uh, over under top 50? And we were going to take an average of points per game, points per play, and yards per play. Would they be top 50 over under? You and I both took them getting better than top 50, but just barely. That was the play. Slightly better. We were way wrong, obviously, as Florida finishes 108th in an average of those categories. Now, these stats, points per game, points per play, yards per play, of course, highlight Florida's massive deficiency this season. If you're trying to say, wait a minute, why do you keep talking about success rate, but then I'm hearing this be 108th? Well, all three of those things have everything to do with explosive plays. And we highlighted Florida being second to last in explosive plays. And so this defense, we, we've said this before, if you play 60 plays in a game and 55 are perfect and five are, are touchdowns, you're giving up too many points per game and your stats look and like this. And too many yards per game too. Correct. And so oddly enough, that's the thing about it. With Now, you could also be a defense that does less, but you're way less successful per play. That's what's interesting about mm-hmm. what's happening. But obviously, you cannot give up the explosive plays Florida did, and that led them to a horrible result on these metrics and as a defense in general. So we were wrong on that one. And had Florida had a better defense this year, they probably do get seven or so wins. Sacks by one player. Princely had four and a half the year before. We set the over-under at a pretty good line at seven. And Princely finished with six. I think if Boone is healthy, he probably finishes with 10. Uh, but he wasn't healthy, and therefore we just never had another edge rusher. They could always roll away from him, get away, escape, etc. Still, I think six this season given Florida's Back-end issues, linebacker issues, major linebacker issues. Six is a pretty heroic number. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. And uh, as you said, I think a little more bounce probably get him another sack or two. And then MVP. MVP. We had said Mertz. That was our prediction, and that was accurate. I think closely followed right. by a guy who we've said before, obviously Trey, who significantly changed this offense. Florida was far more productive on offense with Trey in the game. Uh, but I think the reality is you needed both Mertz and Trey together. True. That was Florida's best possible offense. Those guys are both sort of co-MVPs for the offense to roll. Mertz without Trey was not nearly as effective as a scoring quarterback. And Trey without Mertz, obviously, we, we saw, that for we a saw bit, what yeah. that looked like too. So I think those are pretty accurate. 
All right, we talked about the final success rates for the defense last time around. Uh, I'm going to give you the offense as the final. I'm going to give you also Billy's history just quickly here. So this year, Florida's offense success rate-wise finished 46th. Explosiveness, they were 58th. Center downs, 30th. Passing downs, 68th. Running plays, 58th. Passing plays, 39th. Safe to say that's like mid plus slightly, mm-hmm. you know, a slight mid plus for 2023. It was better, of course, than 2022's offense. So there was improvement there. Now I've gone back and I've looked at every single one of Billy's stints as an offensive coordinator or a play caller to see what his success rates looked like. And I'll just give you a couple of the highlight ones here. So you get an idea. First, I'll start with Arizona State in 2017, the one year he was OC there. It looked almost exactly like what you're seeing between Florida's 2023 and 2022 team right in the middle of that. Most of the results are in the 50s and 60s, pretty much smack mid. 2019, Louisiana, his best offense he's ever had with regards to success rate. They were fifth overall in success rate. Heavily skewed, though, because their standard downs rate were fourth, something we know that Billy is good at is standard down production. However, you can notice the kryptonite that I keep bringing up. Passing downs, they were 69th. So once again, if you're in second, seven, or third, and five, they are below average. Rushing plays, 41st, and passing plays, 81st. So they struggled mightily to pass. 2021 Louisiana, 41st overall in success rate. This is the championship winning team, Allen. 42nd on standard downs, 45th on passing downs, 49th on running plays, and 119th on passing plays. So the reason I fired Billy Napier as offensive coordinator after the first game of the season or second game of the season this year is in large part because of this history that exists, that he's never been known as an offensive coordinator. We've talked a lot about it. I'm not going to go into it any more in detail here. Other than to say, although Florida's success rate has improved, if you think that Billy's tenure as an OC leads you to believe at all that what he's put on paper is championship-level offensive coordinating, I would challenge that with data and say that is just not there. It's not there. That's a mid-offense every single day of the week. I don't care how you slice it. The guy's never been anything but mid as an offensive coordinator. And that's just production, not counting in the issues that we see on game day. So for me, it's good. That's where it got better. There's some things Florida did that was positive. I don't know how he breaks out of that though. I don't see the narrative from breaking out of that and escaping into a top quad where you can now say we can push to be a, a top offense, coupling with the fact, Alan, that we're in the state of Florida and most Florida fans want to be offensively minded. So, right. I think, you know, is this, if you had a Iowa level defense and you're able to cobble together an offense, like let's say just here's the components of this team this year. Sure. This offense was good enough. Now they yeah, didn't win sure. a lot of games because they could never play both offense and defense in the same game. Correct. Right. At the beginning of the year, offense is bad. Defense looks okay. Middle of the year, they switch places and then the year they switch back. So I don't know. It, it was very schizo from that perspective. So, you, the story of the season is, I think, the defense lost games. Where at the beginning of the year, we thought, oh, the defense is going to win games. If this was a non-representative sample, if this was like, you know, this is a little bit of an outlier, that's fine. The offensive line was terrible. Not a lot of receivers. New QB and Graham Mertz. Ah, you know what? Success, success rate 27th. I'll take that. Or, sorry, the offense is uh, 46. 46th. I'll take that if it can improve with a much better offensive line. But as you said, the the data and the eye test don't really tell you that's going to get a lot better. And 
you know, we've talked a lot about this, but this gives Billy an opportunity to focus in on the things that he's potentially really good at. And this is not a thing that needs to define his tenure. We'll see what he does here in the next couple weeks. Yeah, and if if he does, and we said this before, we we played the game of where are we with Billy, and I said it then, I'll say it again. If he does define his tenure by keeping himself heavily involved in the offense and play calling and play design, then then I'm out on him and he's out for me, and he will fail his three-year test. He will not have a miraculous turnaround where all of a sudden he becomes an offensive guru. And to your point, in the micro of just this season, the offense played well enough to win several games. But we're talking about developing a champion. I don't think anybody listening to this podcast wants Florida to go seven and five or eight and four every year. We're not looking for that. If you want that, this offense will fit that really well. You can go seven and five, eight and four with this offense all, all day long. If you get a top, you know, 50 defense, that's what you get. Uh, I don't think that's what we're looking for. So that's what we're talking about. Everything we talk about on this pod is to win a title, not to win eight games. So we're going to see what happens there. We'll follow it. We have no news on that right now. We're, we're awaiting whatever happens with it. Uh, and we will see what happens down the road. And of course, we'll bring that stuff to you when it happens. But as of now, there's been no movement on the offensive side of the ball. Much to the chagrin I know of many of you who are worried that Billy's going to keep his guys employed as both Sean Spencer and Quarterman were not his guys. His guys are all still there. All right. Let's talk about recruiting for a second here, Alan. Okay. Florida is still in tier 1.5. We have dropped some, but we're steer, still there in tier 1.5. I want to highlight average player rating, something we've talked about before, but just kind of connect you to where are we right now. Florida's average player rating. So, you know, you have 20 guys in a class. What's the average point total of a guy on the 247, a positive? Very good way to look at, again, like success rate. What does your overall talent look like? Is it like super skewed, top heavy, and everyone else is not very good? That's not going to work, right? What does this look like? Well, this is the thing Napier does best. His like three-week recruiting stint netted us the 18th highest average player rating of that year, which would be below the Florida baseline. The Florida baseline going back to Urban, not counting Urban, because Urban was a top two guy on average player rating, was 10 to 15th, varying. Could be a little higher, could be a little lower, but that's about where we finished. Then Napier... Last year finished 11th in average player rating, but we talked a lot about just how high that rating was. Last year was a wild year for recruiting ratings. That would have actually been and was the highest average player rating point total since Urban last year's. Since Urban, even though it was 11th, even though other guys finished higher, their class, had you compared the point totals, Alan, would have been lower than Napier's last year. So we showed improvement, and this year we're third. Right now, we're third on average player rating. And in fact, we're just one player behind Alabama. If the next player Florida got was a high-ranking four-star or five-star, we might even pass Alabama on average player well, we rating. We are. We are ahead of them. So, okay. We're, we're, we're just behind Georgia and Florida or Ohio State. There you go. So now we are there. So there you go. So something has happened in the past, you know, 12 hours since I looked at it. But regardless... That's what we're talking about here. So there's been a significant uptick in average player, both last year and this year. That will pay dividends on the field, but you got to keep them. You got to keep them. And then this high school class that we're holding together now is a tier one and a half. We're a couple of players away again from this being a tier one. We just need a few more top 300 guys since we've lost a few of those guys in the shuffle. So recruiting, the most important part of the three-legged stool, the part that generally allows your team to compete for titles. That's what Billy's doing best, to your point. Alan, we will know everything by the time we come back with you on our next podcast. 
which will be after signing day on December 21st. Until then, a lot can happen. Right. So I think Florida's still in on a lot of top guys. They have to hold on to some of these guys in the class. I mean, again, if you want to look at just the traditional metrics, I mean, Florida has two five stars, essentially a third. Like, so LJ McCray is a guy you'll see listed as a five star. He's a five star for three of the four services that are in that composite. Um, or I actually, I don't know how, what two, four, seven uses in their composite, but one of the services has them at like 250. He's like third and sixth in some of the other ones. So there's often divergence. That's a lot of divergence. He might end up being a five star and Florida is currently sixth in that composite tier. But again, are that composite relative ranking, but that's why the tier system is also a helpful check on that because um, you know, Miami, which is above Florida right now, has 27 commits, and Florida is like less than a point away from them. And Florida only has 19 commits and a much higher player average. So, which is more important, right? Retaining, recruiting a high, high-rated players with hot, with obviously a consistent high-average class every single year is going to lead to your two deep being solid. Whereas Miami's class, if you have eight guys that produce out of that class and the rest don't really do much of anything, that is not. A sustainable long run solution. So you want to have, you know, you take twenty guys. Ideally, you want eleven to twelve of those guys to become players for you on your two deep. And eight are probably not going to become that way. That's pretty normal. If you get that every single year, you got a great team by the time those guys are juniors. So yeah, let's say you get into, let's say LJ McCray becomes a five star if he gets, which is probably the most likely thing I, I would think. Then Florida has three, and they're right up there with, you know. Georgia and Ohio State have four. Florida State has three. Alabama has two. You're you're recruiting with the big boys at that point. Again, they might not be up as high as them, but Florida, that'll get the job done. Yeah, for the first time since Urban, you're there. Yeah, And that is obviously the major case. For people that want Billy fired now, I say no chance, no way in any world do I want Billy fired right now. Absolutely none. Because talent is what you have to have. Right, you have to have it. One of the best things that benefited Urban Meyer is that Ron Zook was a decent enough recruiter that when Urban inherited a super dysfunctional team that was not competitive, did not have the right practice habits, did not have the right mentality, he was very quickly able to flip it into a juggernaut. And so I think right now is we need this recruiting class. If Billy does not make it through the end of year three, or he does make it until the end of year three, and you can hire a competent next coach that excites the players that are on the roster, you will have some attrition. But if you can hold that, you theoretically have two or maybe even three recruiting classes in a row, Alan, that are top six or so in UF historical average player rating. And now you're talking about being much closer to being competitive. So that is the most positive news we can give you on today's podcast is that if that holds and we're going to follow it and we're going to be back on December 21st to put the, put the, the nail to the wood, if you will, uh, then you know that will be very, very positive for Billy, despite having these results on the field. Right, and I think, again, not getting too high or too low on any one player, the quarterback position is sometimes different. So GJ Lagway, I think if he stays in this class, most of the class should at least you know man, I end up top five. There could be some major attrition, but those are some of those make or break kind of players potentially. Again, I don't follow recruiting enough to really tell you all these things, but you need those topping guys to really break through. And Florida hasn't had a lot of those guys in the last decade. 
it's getting more and more of them. And then, you know, don't get your heart too much set. Again, Kamari Wilson was our highest ranked guy in a long time. He's never played for us. He's going to transfer out. Yeah, and even quarterbacks. You look at, you know, today right the news is that um, Georgia is five-star quarterback, number two overall quarterback, right, gets beat out, correct, and now he's transferring. So this is why you have to have multiple of them. Right. Florida's at the beginning of trying to acquire talent, and they're thin. We're thin, right? We know that. And so we need all these guys to stick because we don't have the luxury of having three of them. We have one of them. So there's that. That's rosy news there. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. All right, this is awesome stuff. So something we debuted this year, Danny Kent, one of our listeners, uh, we debuted the, D- the DKI analysis, as we call it, each week, looking at the Danny Kent Index which is a factor of multiple things. The one we like to focus on are the recruiting average ranking of your starters, the years they have played in your system of your starters, the blue chip ratio. So how many of your starters are obviously four or five stars and then your COVID all-stars, right? So how many guys are super seniors? Like how veteran is your team on that measure? And you get a really good feel for what's happening. So I had reached out to, to Danny and said, hey, would you do a more expansive comparison rather than just the one school we're doing and he undertook looking at 2000 players on 24 different schools to get this and this stuff is awesome i mean this is awesome stuff i think it's going to be super insightful and it's going to give you a really good idea of where florida is and this to me if you want to talk about what explains where most teams are this will largely do it for you all right schools he did were all 16 sec schools including texas and oklahoma as sec schools then Ohio State, Michigan, Oregon, Washington, USC, Clemson, Florida State, and Miami. 
Most great, of the ones that you care most about. Great subset of schools here. And this is fantastic. So let's first look at UF's rank in general in these categories because you're going to get what's going on. UF's recruiting average is a number that I'm going to give to you, although it doesn't really matter. What matters more is where they're placed. Is 89.17, which is good for 13th, 13th out of 24 teams. Okay, so that's the bottom half, right out of the gate, right in the middle. 13th out of that and 7th in the SEC. That is our recruiting raw ranking. The years average, right? So our starters, how many years have they played? 2.06 is their years of experience. That is good for 18th. So now we're in the bottom third, roughly, and 12th in the SEC. So only 14 teams in the SEC, 16 if you look at Texas and Oklahoma being counted in there. But for this case, in the SEC, right, 14 is two. Blue chip ratio, 47% of Florida's starters blue chip. That's good for 13th, again, bottom half, and 7th in the SEC. COVID All-Stars, Florida only had eight, something we kept highlighting towards the end of the year, which is 20th out of 24 teams and 12th in the SEC. So out of those four important categories, we are below average on all of them, and we're in the bottom quarter of two of them. Yeah, and some of those guys like Taraja Mitchell, like... Those are our veteran guys. Yeah, didn't really even play, so... Not really playing, not really helping. So that tells you a lot about... Where, when you look at that stuff, you think, where, does Florida, where is Florida finishing? What it's telling you is that Billy Napier, and this is this seems to be evident right now, Billy Napier is not capable of, of let's call it, out-coaching the scout right now. Right, Dan Mullen on offense could outcoach the scout, if you will, and the scout being the talent that you're seeing, or he could get more out of it. So far, Billy is getting exactly what you'd expect him to get, or maybe a little less out of what we're seeing here. If you look at these rankings, where did Florida finish in the SEC East this year? A functional tie for fourth, right, with three other teams. Okay, so we also tied for four teams with our just division record. If you look at the West and the East, we're either eighth, ninth, tenth, or eleventh. There's a tie there. That seems pretty congruent with given where I just gave you were in the SEC between 7th and 12th. And overall record-wise, so just go outside the SEC, but compare the SEC teams overall record, uh, we're tied for 10th, 11th, and 12th, if you will. Three teams at 10th, 11th, and 12th, which looks pretty congruent to where we are. So again, what a sobering smack in the face is, Florida's team is this. In general, outside of just these four categories, there are more. UF is in the bottom 50% of every single category that the DK index is tracking. That means, essentially, that UF, when you compare them to the other top schools, is below average in talent, in years of experience, etc. What's essentially means what, Alan? UF is deficient in both experience and talent. And Billy Napier is not the kind of coach that maybe others are that is going to maximize that reality right now but it's why we're talking about recruiting the way we do this is unsustainable no coach can leave the talent numbers the way they are and compete for an sec title we are not the florida that perhaps some of you think we are all right and here's some more here's some more fun dki facts to to settle in with bama and uga are both four points higher than florida on average per starting recruit what does this mean UF is four points higher than Vanderbilt for comparison. That's wild. The difference between Vanderbilt and Florida is the difference between Florida and Georgia and Alabama. You feel that on the field. And you feel it and you see it. And it's one thing we talked about with McElwain. That era was so important to us, Alan. We talked about how McElwain's getting these, these sort of mythical fake results, but the team was not talented, right? 
generally speaking. Now, he hit on a few talented top-end guys, which we talked about. Same thing with Dan Mullen. We just didn't have consistent talent coming in. Meanwhile, Bama and Georgia were just recruiting buzzsaws, right? So with that, that's the difference right now. Florida is yeah, significant. That hurts to hear it, but it's true. Difference between the top guys in Florida. And the teams that tend to have the best high school recruiting totals, we're looking at you, Georgia and Alabama and Texas, of course have the lowest overall number of years of experience and by far the fewest COVID All-Stars. They're not going to have those super seniors on their team. And here is something that's going to hurt a lot of you because a lot of you have really hung your hats on the fact that Florida is so young, no coach could make them good. It's all youth. Bama, Clemson, Texas, LSU, Texas A&M are all younger than Florida were this year. Younger than Florida. Bama, Clemson, Texas, LSU, A&M, all younger than Florida. What is the obvious difference? Something we keep talking about. The talent level is vastly different. Vastly different. UGA was slightly older than Florida. Slightly older than Florida. So the here's what you level. have to look at. So here's the here's the really fascinating. Like if you look at the, the teams that you're not mentioning, Michigan, Washington, FSU, they're really old. Yeah, well, I was about to get to that, but I like yeah. you're getting there now. Yeah, Go so ahead, hit it. This this will basically Florida is relatively young and not mid, talented, mid tier talented. You know, compared to of, the top guys, right? Of this, yeah, middle middle of the. So top. we're the worst of all the ends, right? So you you either need to like load up and be Michigan is super old, like yeah. After this year, they're but not nearly as old as Florida State is, right? Florida State is Florida State's the oldest by far. Followed so, by Ole Miss, Lane yeah. Kiffin, had a good year. And then Washington. This Washington should not be surprising. Old. These are old, old teams. They're almost they're starting guys that are almost a year and a half more experienced on average than so, teams like Texas, Clemson, Bama, Georgia. This gives Bucks. me hope that if Florida continue to become more talented and less reliant. Again, this is also skews for Florida, right? So it's not just who's on the roster, but who is playing for Florida. Well, this is the starters. This is what this is. Oh, okay. This whole index is only starters, which okay. is good. That's Never why mind. it's great. And here. so what is the deal? Yeah, get out of here. So what is the deal? The difference is the blue chip ratio of starters, right? That's what we're talking about. How can how can Bama, Texas, you know, Clemson, et cetera, Georgia get away with this? Well, their blue chip ratio is, in some cases, almost twice as high as Florida's is. Florida's is 47%. Bama's and Georgia's are in the 80s. Mid-80s. Georgia's 88% of their starters are blue chippers, right? It's because 88% of the roster is blue chippers. Correct. That's almost double Florida. So they can get away with having the same experience as Florida two years if they're twice as talented. That's a, that's a recipe for winning. Or another recipe is to be really old. But look, we said this. The COVID super seniors are going away. That was a that was a, an era that is not going to exist. You're not going to have seven-year players anymore. You're not going to have six-year players much anymore. That's coming to an end. So then you have to look at your team and say, who does Florida need to be? Well, you hit the nail on the head, Alan. Florida needs to be a team that recruits high school really well and follows in the footsteps of Clemson, Bama, Texas, LSU, et cetera. That's what we have to get to. But right now, look in the mirror, face reality. Florida is deficient in both experience and talent. And here is your last fun fact for you. Florida State, a team I have trolled all year long, a team that I have not thought is actually very good quarterbacked by a guy who's excellent we talked about this Jordan Travis like a one-man band on offense they have the third lowest blue chip ratio out of these 24 teams the third lowest who's lower than them get ready for this Missouri by a touch so Florida State's 30% blue chip Florida's 47% blue chip by the way 
Missouri, 28%, and then Vanderbilt at 9%. So these are just the starters, right? That's it. So, so Florida State starters, are, as we've said, are not very talented, but they do have talent in the right places, right? Well, Their defensive ends, uber talented on defense. This is also Jordan Travis is probably not a blue chip. Jared Verse, obviously not. No, and Verse is correct. So you can hit on some, and they have, but the key still is like, what is this Florida State team? If you take a verse and take a Travis and pick one or two other guys and make the rest of the team Florida's guys that are young and inexperienced and not that talented, not very good. Mm-hmm. And they barely kind of managed a weaker schedule with that. Well, they're super, as we said before, they're super top heavy yep. with talented transfers for the most part. And that was a great job by Mike Norvell. And that yeah. was a big, like we mentioned, fail on Billy as Norvell went out there. Now, to Florida State's credit, and we're going to look at the three-year test. Nice transition right now. Let's put the DKI behind us. Hopefully that give you a lot of context on where Florida is. I think, thank you, Danny Kent, that you have yes. created, in my opinion, the most, it's obvious, right? When you hear the numbers, it makes so much sense. That's what good data does. You don't have to like go to great lengths to interpret it. You're like, yeah, this matches up with reality and the eye test and what just makes sense in football. But it explains it so succinctly. Like right there, you get it. There's your look at your playoff teams. There's your look, and you mentioned Michigan. Michigan's like, a more talented version of a Washington and Florida state, but not nearly as talented as a Bama, which explains Michigan's reaction to Alabama being the number four seed when they were praying it was Florida state, obviously. Mm-hmm. Right. You and know, this is why they can, why these teams can hang, but this is also, these are not Michigan has a shot because these are not vintage Georgia and Alabama teams because these they are, are younger in some spots, extra they, young in some spots. And they're replacing, you know, Georgia replaced like half their teams in the NFL. From that's correct. Years, so. That's correct. And that's why it can be done. So you can win that way. That is a path to winning. We've talked about that obviously before. It does exist. It is there. All right. Now that leads into our three-year test. Now, if you want to listen to the full three-year test criteria and breakdown, it is there forever for your listening pleasure. In the 2021 season, just pull up your podcasting app, whatever you listen to, and look back in 2021, you will see a podcast titled In-Depth Look at the Three-Year Test and Head Coaching Candidates. It is the Missouri Analysis and FSU Prep episode from 2021. Just go check that out. I give you the entire look. What is a three-year test? What does it mean? How do we use it? What goes into it, et cetera? I'm not going to that now because that exists for you. If you've never heard of the three-year test, I will give you the simple primer on what it is. It is a way to look at the first three years of any head coach and determine whether they will be able to win a national title. It is that simple. You could also use the three-year test at schools that cannot theoretically win a national title or historically have not done so to where you compare that current coach to the baseline, baseline of recruiting, baseline of win-loss record, et cetera. And then you can say, are they above the baseline? Are they at the baseline or are they below it? That's essentially what the three-year test does. But again, the three-year test is pretty unique in that in the modern era, if you have not passed this test, you have not won a national title. It's that unique. There are some guys who pass the three-year test to go on to become terrible football coaches. That does happen right? Larry Coker, we're looking at you and some other guys like that, but those are kind of weird inherited program scenarios. So let's look at a few guys because there are some interesting three-year test results going on right now. First, Mike Norvell, his first year, COVID year, three and six, then he went five and seven, then he went 10 and three. So a nice uptick and now 13 and 0. Now, a lot of people would say, throw out the COVID football season. I think that's probably historically going to be the right thing to do in right. general. And or if at you, least you can... If you don't throw it out, you don't put much weight on it. You don't put much weight on it, right? You can allocate this lower. But either way, even in Mike Norvell's three-year test, he goes 10-3 and at the end, which would have been a fail for the test, but it would have been what we call a push or a one more year and extend. If you begin to show trend improvement like this, 
which he did. He also had the number one transfer class in the portal. You get one more year to prove yourself, which he then went 13-0, wins the conference, and now essentially passes his three-year test. Yes. And if mean, you throw the COVID year out, he definitely passes his three-year right. test. If Jordan Travis is not hurt, he's in the playoff year. Correct. Full pass. So we're going to go ahead and give him a full pass on the three-year test, which means, to my chagrin, <laughs> and I like the hire from Mike Norville. I said when I hired him, I liked it. Offensive-minded guy, makes sense. That now means that Florida State does have one of the few guys coaching college football that has passed a three-year test. There are not many guys who have yes. that. So theoretically, he could win. What's worse is you want to check now, okay, is he all a super senior COVID team? Well, Florida State's top three in recruiting. Right. That's what really hurts is like they had not been recruiting all that well. It's like, I mean, he cannot keep hitting on these portal guys every year. You're going to run out of luck that way. But if you're going to recruit at that level... Yikes. Okay. So if so you're buying a, a three-year like test stock, Mike Norvell stock is one you'd buy immediately mm-hmm. right now. All trends point to up. All right, let's look at Kalen DeBoer. So that's Washington's coach. For those of you that perhaps don't know his name because you know Washington, you know Michael Penix, but maybe not him. He was coaching at Sioux Falls, the powerhouse that they were, where he went 67-3. and three. Yes. That's pretty good. He was then hired by Fresno State COVID year, went 3-3 three and because three they barely played out there in California. Then he went 9-3 and three at Fresno State and got hired to Washington, where he promptly has gone 24-2 and two in two years. 11-2 and two last year, 13-0 this year. They're obviously in the playoff. The last time that Washington was undefeated was in 1991. The three years preceding his tenure, Washington was 4-8. and eight. They were 3-1 and one in that half-COVID year, and then 8-5. and five. So they were not lighting the world on fire, Allen. However... However, he has passed the three-year test, right? He's in year two. He's passed it. They are not recruiting well. They're recruiting below baseline for their own school. That is a very bad sign, which means he might be an excellent, and clearly I think it's safe to say is an excellent football coach as far as managing a football team, et cetera. He has one of the oldest teams in college football. It's very possible this will be the absolute peak for him. Sure. And it will be the peak for him unless they find a way to recruit because and you cannot recruit below Washington's baseline. He's right now 40th. Yeah, he's the way below. Isn't that high? It's like 19th is if they're doing well, right? That's like that's like kind of where they need to be thrown. And he is way below it. So they have got to figure that out. So that's a pass. And but yeah, got to get you, talent. You and this might be dollar amount commitments. This is maybe just him learning the state of this thing. So obviously you're not gonna. <laughs> They're going to keep him around for a while. Oh, and you should. You should be stoked. This is where I would say, now, if the recruiting doesn't work out, this is a a negative aspect of this, but his success, Lance Leopold. um, Oh, gosh, I just had somebody else who, the guy at uh, Kansas State. I'm leaving out his name. But these guys who are coming from smaller, below FBS, FCS, Division II, if they are winning at an incredible clip, if you're a smaller school, instead of taking some like um, coordinator, coordinator or assistant or whatever, hire guys like this. Yeah, absolutely. Going 67 and three is something. Oh, yeah. Sure. When you're see again, you see the immediate success. And Fresno State, immediate success. Washington, immediate, immediate success. Immediate and, success. And again, not a team that was good. He no. took the talent that was there and made them way better. And that 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 is that exists, right? So again, he, he to me now goes in the category where that's an excellent football coach. The only question mark he has is can he recruit? And that unfortunately is the reality of being like a longstanding powerhouse. But if you're Washington, you're stoked beyond belief. You found yourself a baller coach and now you got to find resources to pull recruits in, which, which is something you can do, right? Yeah, get a then, budget, get stuff happening. And they might get a bump after this year. So this wouldn't be the year you would see it necessarily. 
Right. Because it's so far, it lags so far now. behind. Correct. Correct. Right. But either way, that's a pass. So this is weird to have two passes in one year. It's very unusual. And then lastly, we're going to go with Steve Sarkeesian. Very interesting. So obviously, he's failed his three-year test before. He coached at Washington. Right? Mm-hmm. However, you get a new test every time you go into a new school because maybe you learn something. The rehab program at Alabama seems to have worked, and the fit at Texas maybe is the right one. So Texas. Sark's first year, 5-7. and seven. Second year, 8-5. and five. This year, 12-1. and one. He is recruiting at the Texas baseline, which is very high. So he's right back to a top five kind of on average Texas class. His class for this year is not quite as great. Still solid. Last year was excellent. Uh, I expect him to recruit at that kind of level. So that means that he has also passed his three-year test. So now you're in the SEC. This is why the SEC is hard, right? right? You're Florida. You have your ACC annual opponent in Mike Norvell passing his three-year test. You have three-year test pass at Georgia and Alabama and now Texas where you're also playing. That's not so fun. Not ideal, right? Not the ideal situation if you're Florida. And you've got coaching all-stars at several yeah. other spots. And well. you've got Brian Kelly, who's not passing his LSU three-year test so far. We'll see what happens next year. But he also has a Heisman Trophy, probably winning quarterback that he you know, brought in there and dominated with. We'll see what happens. So Billy's three-year test, the one you're all waiting for. <laughs> the obvious answers here. Billy goes in year one, six and seven. In year two, he goes five and seven. That's a regression. In year three, which we've seen some of these guys, they've popped, they've popped big in year three, right? It's happened. It could happen. Look up Florida's schedule next year. That seems extremely unlikely. Right now, if you have to handicap this, there's probably a 99.9% chance that Billy fails his three-year test. I mean, it's going to take an absolute miracle beyond all miracles. It would be an unbelievable story of the decade sports story if Billy wins the SEC next year. It's against right. all that. It's just not going to happen. He's, not, he's going to fail his three-year test for reasons that are partially of his own doing, and you can attribute some factor to the fact that Florida was starting at a lower point. But regardless, I'm not going to put too much weight into that because a three-year test does exist to say the best coaches just get it done in that amount of time. It's just what happens. Billy's not getting it done. He's going to fail that test. The question then really for Billy becomes a pretty simple one. Do you push one more year because you see positive results next year? You have a sophomore lagway, hopefully. You have another good recruiting class behind you, and now you're entering into the fruit of your labors to see what he does in year four. And we've said all along, we said at the middle of year one, for Billy, it's probably going to be a four-year success story if it works, if it happens I mean, the fourth year. right? So that means the third year, we're all going to be looking for, do we push this one more year based upon what we see happen, what he does this offseason, et cetera. But rest assured, he's probably going to fail this test. And so far, the sad part is, no one that has failed this test has won, but Jim Harbaugh, is a guy who failed the test and is trying his best to win. He's competitive. I think all Florida fans would take the Michigan program. Michigan, another elite public school. We'd all take what Michigan results are, 100%. We'll beat Florida State three years in a row. We'll make the playoffs. We'll take that, right? So that's where we are with yeah. the three-year test. And I would say if you're looking at some of these guys, again, anecdotal evidence is hard. Like you just can't, if you're cherry-picking things, you want to be careful there. So Norvell, right? Even if we, you know, that first year, who knows what the record would have been. Five and seven, you know, Sark, that eight and five, Billy could obviously, this could be very easy, seven and five headed into a bowl game, right? Sure. It could you, be. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it could be. What's nice is those years don't matter because you have to hit the big year. Well, yes, exactly. So he's not so off trend, is what I mean. No. If you look at some of these guys, right? So if you, be, you make the kick against Arkansas and you stop the fourth and 17. Yeah, sure, of course. You're seven and five. You've trended slightly up. 
and you're waiting for a big year three, right. but the Florida, the death nail is Florida's schedule. So that's where you have to nuance it, right? Correct. So nobody else is normally playing the schedule that Florida's going to play. Nobody. So let's say the accumulation would lead you not to like a conference championship type of year, but like a big boom kind of year. Right. Where normally that would have been like a, a you know, 11 and 1, 12 and 0 kind of year. Or ten and two, maybe Florida's like nine and three. Yeah, oh, nine and three would be a massive. That, that's right. a that's a clear push, yes. like easy layup push. Result. Considering who you have to play, not if you give us nine and three right now, I think every Florida fan would say hundred percent. So oh, that would be if massive. you go nine and three or eight and four, yeah, and you look really good. So yeah. you, if you finish with a top five class, correct, and you're you know you're in December and you're headed towards another top five class, whatever the record is. If it looks good, and if it's seven and five, eight and four, nine and three, he's you would want to give him another year because you're starting to build something. You could see something emerging at the end of that year. So exactly right. I I think if this class doesn't hold, he's basically pre-fired. I agree. That's correct. So if this class holds, and then the the team again makes appreciable improvement against what is an absolutely brutal schedule, I think no one is thinking. You know it. Shoot, you take Georgia's exact team from this year and run them up against Florida's schedule next year, they probably go something like 10 and 2. Yeah, and they could lose three, right? It's possible for sure. So that we're going to have to temper expectations in terms of what the actual results are. Correct. But you want to be competitive in, in all, against all the best teams, you want to be in those games. That's right. And that's the three-year test, as we said from the beginning, wasn't that it was, you know, we've always said there's there's going to be an exception. There's an exception to every great general rule, if you will. That's why the rules are something you should follow as a metastrat. But you should be careful to recognize someone's going to break this one day. Someone's going to get outside of it. But if you can't defeat the null hypothesis, then you need to generally pull the plug. Unless, like we said, there's positive momentum that leads you to believe it's worth investing another year in. It's certainly not something worth investing a contract extension in. And I think that's a big point of emphasis here. The three-year test should be a gift to athletic directors because they don't have to lock themselves into horrible deals where you're buying out a coach and you fire him. And if you want to sit down with your coach and he says, hey, man, I want eight and four in year, in year three. I'm ready for an extension. Hey, you know what? <laughs> year four is your year. I'll, I'll load up with all the incentives you want. I'll pay you $10 million if you win the national championship in year four. But I'm not going to give you a three-year extension for you to fall on your face in year four, the proving year, and then have to pay you money. Not going to happen. So it's a tool. It's an evaluation tool. It's a, it's a, an impersonal, non-emotional, data-driven tool that you can use to say, are we succeeding or are we failing? And so that's where we are now. And obviously, that will bring us to our next segment, which is what should we do now? What should Florida do right now as a program? What are the most pressing needs for them to dive into? Well, obviously, need to hire a couple of defensive positional coaches. I think what we would both like to see is Florida hire a top-level OC. There are some names out there. We haven't really, we won't have time to get into that in this episode. We'll see what Florida does. Um, but you would like to see someone with a track record of success who would really move the needle. Obviously, there's a, a chance for promotion from Russ Calloway, who had who's our current tight ends coach. I don't know whether it'd be a good idea or not. Might be great. Might be not so great. Any offensive coaching hire, you know, comes with question marks. But that seems to be a need there. And then that would probably necessitate a move somewhere else in the staff. If you're hiring another coaching staff guy, you probably have to let someone go. We can currently employ two offensive line coaches, one of whom carries an OC title. 
So to bring in a new OC, you would presumably have to fire your current one. So that would probably necessitate a, a coaching shakeup. I don't know if these things are going to happen. There's some people who are very optimistic it's going to happen. Some people who are very pessimistic that's going to happen. Um, and we don't have any tea leaves to read in this area. No, we, we definitely do not, uh, unfortunately. We'd love to have some tea leaves to read. I'd love to have inside information to give you. We do not have any. But I think to your point, Alan, on the coaching front, it will not be enough for Napier to hire an OC who is like a a puppet. Mm-hmm. It cannot be a puppet. And, it, you know, Russ Calloway is an air raid guy. He's well thought of being a very sharp guy. I could get on board. I love air raid. I get on board with that, but I cannot get on board with it if it's uh, if it's what it is now. Right? Rob Sale is not an OC. Rob Sale is a puppet that has a title because they wanted to reward him and pay him more money, whatever the case may be. I have no idea. But he's not really an OC at all. And Billy's offense, the school it comes from, that school of offense can work. That's always important. We always talk about this, right? There's multiple ways that you can run offense and you can win. We all have preferences. I like to run more of a passing air raid style at Florida. I think that fits. You can run more of the Kyle Shanahan zone run, wide zone, you know, pistol, use a lot of reverses, backfield action, right? You can do that. But the knock on Shanahan's offense is that junk only works if your entire team is loaded with studs, like everyone. Like, look at what happens to the 49ers when Debo's out. Their offense is not good. It's, it's so dependent upon player talent. That's why I don't like it. Um, obviously, looking at what Mike McDaniel is doing, Miami has an embarrassment of riches there on offense, but I love the tactical nature he employs along with the quick vertical passing game, which I think is a major trump card that the Dolphins have over the 49ers. They have an, a fantastic vertical passing, but the quarterback can't throw vertically. So regardless of what we think, it can't be a puppet. The OC, if we, if we want to stay in the family, let's call it the Shanahan family, we want to run that kind of style of offense, you can win that way, but you better have an OC who can do whatever the heck he wants within that school. You cannot have Billy saying, I want to run this way and do this. You can't have him overriding on the headset saying, do this and do that. It can't be that way. It's got to be free reign over the right. offense. And so it makes most can't sense be a puppet. that we'd hire somebody in the, at least the same vein of what Bill likes. So you would Correct. reduce the amount of conflict at least at an abstract, big picture level. So, because if you're if you hire a guy who comes from a completely different system, you're just going to be butting heads on what you think fundamentally consistently. Because Billy's not going to wake up tomorrow and decide that what he thinks about offense is now not. He could not say, best. I mean, he could do that. And if he does that, more power to him. If he hires an air raid guy or a different, wholly different, other kind of offensive training. that would be ideal to me because that would mean that he's truly let go sure. of the offense. And now that creates potentially more conflict, but there's also a lot of room for change there. So it's fine, but yeah, I, I, it can work either way, but it has to be somebody. If you empower somebody, it has to be, you know, someone who has the talent to do it and you give them the freedom to do it. And we'll see again. I would think most likely if we hire somebody, it will be in the same vein that not necessarily might not even hire anybody at all. Yeah. And that would be, that would be, and I'm out in that scenario. Uh, So I think one thing we said about the defense (laughs) was that, where there are two leaders, there are none. So we'd mentioned the co-defensive coordinators. We've talked about before, like you want to have a lead coordinator. You want to have one guy that's the dog. Well, I think on the offensive line, our offensive line is a bad unit. We have two coaches. We're employing a lot of capital. We talked about this last time, right? As far as coaching hires and changes to be made, I have a hard time believing you can you can keep 
both of your O-line coaches employed when you fired a D-line coach who just got hired by A&M and largely on film his unit was fine. You fired a well-thought-of recruiter, but to fi- to not fire if it doesn't happen, two O-line coaches, at least one of them, would be seemingly unbelievably egregious given the whiffs that have gone on at that position. Who knows? We're going to follow it all. Uh, but again, I think coaching hire need number one for you and I, Alan, number one is going to be what we've talked about, a offensive coordinator who is not a puppet. That's step one. And I can be flexible to a lot of different styles. I do think for Florida's brand, it's far better to have more of a passing-oriented style. It's what the state wants to do. It's what our fans want to do. It's what the culture of our school is. We are not the Big Ten. We want to throw the football. We need... That just is where Florida's going to hit their ceiling. Agreed. So that's important to me. If I'm hiring and I'm consulting, I am saying, this is what you need to do, Billy. This is the kind of school you're at, the kind of states you're in, the kind of players that want to play for this, is this. I need this. I know you can win with this. If you want that, go to the Big Ten. All right? Secondarily, though... I think we have got to do something about the offensive line. We have to. You have got to make changes there. You just have to. You're on your last year. This is your last lifeline. Now, maybe you want to go down with the ship because you think those two guys are your guys. But that, to me, are my two number one scenarios there. Fix the offensive line, whatever that may be. And then, again, number one, OC. And presumably, you would want to make a change at the special teams analyst kind of coordinator position. yeah that that's like a let's go beyond layup. and may or may not happen though we'll see and that would be unbelievably wild again optics are important like we've talked about sometimes you need to do it because just the optics of the scenario like you have to build trust you want to give your players you don't want your players into the into this into spring camp answering questions from the media hey the special teams operation is exactly the same what's going to make it different this year you don't want those questions to be questions that are even mm-hmm. asked so you just get rid of somebody you bring somebody new in and you start fresh and that way the new questions are hey what are you learning now that's different and there's optimism and hope sure and then i i have no, i don't know this stuff at all i don't you have to be very inside the program so there's people who've complained about floor strength and conditioning in terms of our play strength i have no idea if that is even related to the coach who Mark Hockey, who currently does that, that's a very important person inside of a program. So it's not something you lift out lightly, but we'll see if changes are made there. Yeah. And they fired their sports nutritionist, which for most people is a very head scratching move. She seems like a very accomplished person. We have no information on this stuff. We're just reporting the news that went out there and people were frustrated because look, when you're losing, everyone is fair game. And, it, you know, and we don't know. So I'm not even going to comment on whether that was good, bad, or indifferent, but I can tell you the optics of that are predictably not good. So once again, if you're managing an organization, you hope somebody's over your shoulder saying, hey, have you considered what that's going to look like if you fire a sports nutritionist and your strength coach remains? That seems odd. Maybe if you don't fire the sports nutritionist at all, no one even bats an eye. I don't know. There had to be a good reason for that. Yeah, right. Would be the hope. But whatever. You're You're just creating more hurdles for yourself when you don't want to be doing that. All right. What are your biggest needs Let's say personnel wise, what is Florida transfer portal wise? Like what are we doing right now? Transfer portals open. What should Florida be looking at with their hair on fire? Number one, number one, number one, any offensive lineman that you can get. If they have a pulse and they came from a conference where they started every game and they did something. I mean, I, these are the, <laughs> these guys that don't transfer often. They're at a premium. If there's a guy you can come in. I mean, I, obviously the ceiling of this is an Osiris Torrance, which those guys are not in there very often. Uh, Micah Mazuka was fine. Our other ones were l- less fun. I'll say that. And 
so you if you can get an established guy to come in, I mean, uh, you know, Alabama took Tyler Steen from, I believe, Vanderbilt. He played for them. Now he's in the NFL. Doesn't have to. They don't have to come from a high profile place to be good, right? Torrance comes from Louisiana, right? So if you scout him and he looks great, take him. Uh, outside linebacker, basically rush end, Jack, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we need more of those guys. Even if Prince Lee returns, we need way more of them. We desperately missed a guy like Antoine Powell Ryland, who is a good player, but not a superstar. Desperately missed him. And then I would say the next one, again, we have a lot of holes here. The next one would be a veteran linebacker, right? The guy you envision Taraja Mitchell should have been. Doesn't have to be elite, but a guy who can come in and be really solid. You're going to hope that Shamar James and these younger guys take a big step forward, but there's still a big hole there. And then corner, depending on what Jason Marshall, Kimber is presumably gone. You have some good young talent. I think you can take a veteran guy to come in and play nickel or outside should be, again, the smaller guys are much more available. You should be able to go out and find a corner. It doesn't have to be an all pro, a nickel guy. Right. And then maybe you take a veteran safety too. That's probably lower down the list. You could talk about wide receiver. I would take a wide receiver as well. But I think interior or exterior uh, offensive line, right? So the tackles or guards or centers, anybody, a rush end, and then linebacker would be my preference. And, and then corner after that, probably probably wide receiver before safety. Yeah, I think wide receiver before safety for me too. We need to have an outside receiver. We have to have somebody that's vertical threat speed that you're worried about in this offense. It is it is crushing Florida. That There's no one that lines up out there. They can run past somebody, straight run past somebody to open that step off, uh, especially for Trey underneath. That's gonna yeah, be especially big, now that you're losing Caleb Douglas. I, I think, yeah. You have to have one. You got to get one of those there's, guys. There's a, probably a billion receivers in the portal. Go pick one. Yeah, find one. Obviously, they hit on Ricky when they pulled him in. That was big. Uh, and then, of course, a, a huge need beyond what you just said is to recruit your own players to stay. Yes. And Lane Kiffin has highlighted this better than anyone else. What his day looks like in December, which is waking up and recruiting a guy from a different school, going to his team and recruiting his own guys to stay. Right, going to the boosters and, re- and requesting more NIL money. It's like and a, recruiting a, high schoolers and then recruiting high schoolers. It's like an obscene thing that you have to do, but it is what you have to do. So you can to complain about it and talk about how things are different and lose, or you can recognize that I don't like it. I wouldn't prefer it to be this way. I wish it were changed, but until it's changed, I'm going to do what it takes to win within the rules. Right, obviously. So I think that's what has to happen with Florida. So you've got to keep these guys in your own program. And business, a great rule of business, you never want to lose your best clients or customers, right? The replacement rate, what it costs to get somebody who is as good as them is astronomical. Never want to lose them. So do all you can to keep those guys there. So a big offseason, obviously, for Florida. Again, it's unfortunate. We love game theory. We love analyzing organizational behavior. But we almost always have to do it after the event has occurred. Because we just don't have any information, right? So it's hard for Alan and I to grade the firings or what we're doing or not doing because we just don't know what the rationale is. And if we had it, we could tell you, here's the logic, here's what we like it or we don't, but we don't. So we have to wait until we see what happens and we can compare one apple to an apple or one apple to an orange and say, hey, look, now that we know we have this, do we like this, right? And that's obviously something that we'll talk about. And of course, you saw that with Texas A&M when they were going to hire Mark Stoops and the whole fan base revolted 
when you're comparing one Apple to another Apple and you decide, actually, I don't really want this new Apple, uh, you can only really do that when you get some more information. So we'll be with you during the entire off season to evaluate whatever happens. But for now, we're like you. Look, we're just hoping that whatever changes are made are better. That's what we're hoping for. Okay, so far, there's not a lot of evidence or confidence to believe that the direction Florida is going in is going to turn up roses. But we're going to hope that we've learned things and we've figured things out. That's the best thing we can do. We're all fans and analysts at the same time. So we take off our analyst hat and hope this stuff works out. But whenever we have information, we analyze it impartially as best we can to give you the results of that. All right, one game this weekend, Alan. So one game in the slate, and then we are... Bowl season. Bowl season. But there is one. Tell us about this one. Yeah, so it's the Army-Navy game, as always. Army is favored by two and a half versus Navy. Who do you got? I'll go Army. I love it. I'm going to take Navy because I was there recently touring the Navy campus. Congrats to you. About six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. So I've got to take take the midshipmen there. Always a classic. So we love... The Bulls, mostly for the names, uh, about half of the names, half of the games there. We're only going to pick half of them this week because we're going to be back on the 21st. Yes, we've decided to break this. It's, it's more relevant this way. And uh, also great because Alan and I do, not surprisingly, zero prep when it comes to picking these bowl games. Because, look, with people sitting out nowadays and motivations and et cetera on the line, really, it's anyone's guess. So we're here for the names and the picks for entertainment purposes. Okay, the Myrtle Beach Bowl, which features Georgia Southern versus Ohio, who's favored by two. Who do you got? Ooh, I mean, I know who you have to pick <laughs> because your mom will kill you if you don't pick Georgia Southern. So I will take the opposite of that and take Ohio. Okay, yeah. Give me the Eagles there, Georgia Southern. All right, our plus L carriers, New Orleans Bowl, Jacksonville State favored by two and a half versus Louisiana. Wow, the old fighting Billy Napiers here had a decent season, not a great season. I'm gonna take uh, I'm gonna take Jack State here. I'll join you there. Avocados from Mexico, Cure Bowl, Appalachian State, three favored by three and a half versus Miami of Ohio. Man, the avocados from Mexico Cure Bowl is is a strong contender for an early on name winner. I'm gonna take Miami of Ohio because I learned that lesson last time. Did you? I did. I just said that when we picked them. I was like, I, I now know. Don't sleep on them. That's a little, I'm, let's learn it together then. I'll, I'll join you there. I love it. All right. The, I'm not sure how to say this. Isleta. Seems I, great. Isleta. Seems Isleta, right. New Mexico Bowl. Featuring New Mexico State versus Fresno State. New Mexico State's favored by three. I mean, wow, they're a home team, basically. Mm. I, I, they're probably not excited about that. So I don't know how that plays into things. Uh, but, you know, I'll take the home team. Yeah, let's do that. That's some good logic for me. The L.A. Bowl at SoFi Stadium, Boise State versus UCLA, who's favored by two. Nice move by California and L.A., of course. Like, we have to have a cool name. We can't name it something silly and fun, so it's the L.A. Bowl, which, you know, sounds nice. Uh, UCLA playing at home. What's going on with UCLA? I don't know. Do they care about this game at all? Does Boise State care about this game at all? I don't know. I'll take UCLA, but I mean, that seems like a bad If pick. I'm doing the care more factor, I think Boise State does. So I'll jump on that. That's, that's the wise move. I like that. All right. The Radiance Technologies Independence Bowl. Texas Tech favored by three versus Cal. I'm going to tell you right now, having done this many years, the these bowl game matchups are getting way better with regards to the point spreads. I mean, all of these games are like three point spreads. I, I love it. it. This is insane. I'm going to take Cal. Okay. 
I feel like I bet on Texas Tech a lot and they freaking burned me. So I'm going to join you there on Cal. All right. Monday, December 18th. And we got one game here. The famous Toastery Bowl. Man, this might be the winner so far. Toastery Bowl? Come on. Yep. Western Kentucky versus Old Dominion, who's favored by one. Old Dominion. You know I think Kentucky's trash. Give me ODU. Even Western Kentucky is trash? Dang it, you're right. The state of Kentucky is trash. Give me ODU. I love Old Dominion. Yeah, mark it down. All right, last one here. On Tuesday, December 19th, the Scooters Coffee Frisco Bowl. Marshall versus UTSA, favored by eight and a half. Another good name here. Another good name here. Mixing Frisco Bowl, which we talk about every year. It's not in San Francisco. It's in Texas with Scooters Coffee. I mean, I'm on board. I take the Roadrunners here. Eight and a half is a big number, but the Roadrunners are ready to run, and they're going to be drinking a lot of coffee, and they're ready to win. I love the UTSA Roadrunners. Let's put them down. All right, so we're going to save the bulk of these for next time. Yeah, right? the next game is, in fact, on Thursday, December 21st at 8 o'clock. So we'll pick that one, and if you're someone who listens to the podcast right away, then you'll get our pick at that point in time. Yeah, and obviously there's some fun ones coming up, you know. Oh, yeah. There's some fun names There's that some we'll get great to reveal names. here. Oh, man, this is exciting. This is good. And, uh, yeah, that'll be fun. It'll be fun to pick the rest of them. But that'll, that's just to whet your appetite for bowl season. You know, I think I don't watch all these games, but I love that they're on, that I can tune in if I want to. Yeah, it's it's a great background. It's kind of like how baseball is during the regular season. You just sort of slap it on back there. Stuff happens. You notice a play here and there. It's a good piece of conversation, but nothing, nothing too serious, obviously. All right, Daytona Steve. Did not emerge. Hmm. A little bit worried about him. I have to put out a notice to him. I'm not sure where he is. It's bowl season. There are a million games to bet on. He still has money in his account. So I'm a little worried that something yeah, has gone I don't know. down. Maybe that parlay just really got to him. Yeah. he's. I'm a little worried his performance this year has got him broken a little bit. And I'm not sure what he's doing at the dog track right now. But we'll we'll get in contact with the, uh, the Greyhounds and see what's up. We'll, we'll follow up next week or two weeks from now, whatever the case may be. Sounds good. All right, basketball update. You know, man, Alan, we, we can't have nice things as Gators. Florida, like, Florida plays a Wake Forest team that they're better than. We're still playing without our starting center, which is definitely affecting this basketball team. So Florida's been very good when they've had their starters. They have not lost. But when they've had starter issues, we've lost. Tough L to Wake Forest. Sort of yeah. an implosion in the last couple of minutes in that game. That was a game you want because it – I doubt they're going to be a tournament team. They might be, but unlikely you need they to pick will up be. those wins either way. You do need to. So this sets a, a little damper on the season. A lot of people like myself were hoping they were going to play Kentucky after winning every single game in this offseason slate. So some wind out of the sails there. We'll keep a close eye on it. Uh, Florida Still desperately. Still to pick up some momentum along the yeah, way. Yeah, they will. And I think I think the key for Florida's team, though, is I, w- I want to see what happens when all their starters are playing. Because so far they've been really, really good when they've had all of them there. Uh, and we're going to see if that continues when we get Micah Hanlogan back. Okay. We will be back on December 21st. That's a Thursday after the early signing day, which presumably the bulk of everyone's recruiting class is going to be in. So that could be a very newsy two weeks here. It's probably going to be. And hang on to your hats and seats because we need this, obviously. And even if Billy doesn't make it, we need this. As Florida fans, you need to get talent into the program. Okay. With that, we'll close it out. Thankful for you guys. Hope you have a great couple weeks. Hopefully, only good portal entries and no bad ones. We'll see you next time. Either way, go Gators.